Buffalo, New York at that time was like a lot of cities that were up and coming. You know, many African-Americans migrated here from the South in search of better job opportunities. You know, Bethlehem and Republic Steel come, immediately come to mind where many people found employment. Uh, also, you know, for recreation, Buffalo was one of the premier hotspots of the country. We were a closely knitted group. We were, the population was a lot smaller. Uh, the main area, our main community uh, was William Street. That was the major uh, black business district. You cannot imagine what William Street was. You just, the clubs, the, this, they, you know, they could, black people could go out and just be on William Street. They didn't have to go nowhere else, just right on William Street. I'm telling you, the place was popping. It was, it was, it was burning. It was like a, it was a hot city like that. So, you know, the record stores, you know, had to be blazing. They were blazing, you know. So, I'm into all that. Many talk about William Street, but an, another thoroughfare, which in an area that's talked about and romanticized to this day, is Jefferson Avenue. Cold Spring was. Uh very unique uh, in that you really didn't have to go downtown to do any shopping. Uh, you had more than adequate shopping right on Jefferson Avenue. There was a lot of businesses all the way door to door, all the way down past uh, South Division on Jefferson Avenue. Really, you didn't have to go downtown to buy anything that you thought you might need. So, uh, like I said, Jefferson Avenue was, uh, was the heart and soul of the community for a long time. I have memories of Jefferson being so alive and so vibrant and, and so many businesses and so many things going on. The same thing with William Street. You can walk from one end of William all the way down to Michigan and from William and Jefferson all the way down to Ferry, and it was just alive with activity and people doing so many different things. While we were a small community, uh, there were a lot of things that were going on, but there was also uh, a lot of frustration among the youth, and uh, then there was a problem that we were having with the schools. And we were talking about, you know, the uh, lack of a, a quality education for our youth, and. Uh, things of that nature that was there um, until it was a community that was on edge. The people at the time were complaining about being lied to, promises being made to them that were never kept dealing with uh, uh, poverty and jobs, dealing with houses that were dilapidated, and the uh, city actually paying money to develop other parts of the town. We know that the Skajakode Expressway construction disrupted the new the, the black people that were coming into the city who were trying to find houses, houses over there, you know I mean, the uh, Jewish people that were living there, they ended up moving out. Part of the reason because they knew that the demolition was coming. Uh, part of the reason because they knew that the houses, that the foundations along that Skijakwood Expressway would be uh, diminished. Uh, so the, the, the Jewish flight in that area also contributed to the tensions in the area. You were hoping that it wouldn't happen here. It was a, a city that in a community that was waiting for something to happen, there was a lot of frustration. 
that was building up. These kids right here don't have no childhood. A man child, as soon as they're born. You know, no childhood at all. They grow up the minute they hit the ground, you know, hit the earth. They grow up. The minute they get to the world. Yeah, see a whole lot of problems. Like what? I Look at like nasty now. living. Look at this place right I here. We need now. some clean them grass. No I tell you a problem now. Ain't no place around here to go. And uh, I'm not trying to be funny or nothing, but a couple of people around here don't like y'all standing down here taking all this. It was the thing of waiting to see when Buffalo was going to have their day in the news. Um, there were riots going on throughout the country, different cities and what have you. Um, and I think there, there are people out in the, in the streets who, who wanted the excitement of a riot. And I think the other part of that, too, was that there were policemen who wanted uh, uh, the excitement of riots and maybe even some politicians because one of the things that, that uh, happened with the riot, then they could apply to the federal government for funding, and that funding could be used for a number of different things. So uh, it wasn't just the frustrations of black people because they didn't have jobs. That's nothing new in America. Um, it was, uh, there was, uh, it's, what, Many want to see themselves on television. They want to, they want to be in the news. So you know, it, it's that kind of a thing. Well, most of the kids around here, they've been promised jobs for the longest, and they're getting sick of getting promises. They haven't got no jobs yet, and they're getting sick of it. And they told these junkies and these pushers out down here to get out and down here. There's a couple of them still hanging around, so a couple of them got shot. And now they're pulling up. Are you taking responsibility for trying to get some of the junkies and the pushers out of the area? Yeah. You are. Ain't nobody else around here doing nothing about it. Police ain't doing nothing. Grown-ups sit around here and say that they're doing this and doing that, and they ain't doing nothing, so somebody got to do it. But they claim that they've received little encouragement or help from the establishment, and they're getting impatient. As one youth told me, this is the last meeting I'm ever going to. I'm not talking anymore. The youth of Buffalo were dissatisfied. They wanted change. Uh, they felt that the adults were not listening. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, May 26, 2022. So I have been told this is our second book study session on Catherine Palinero's Absolute Madness. Uh, we read the first three chapters last week, uh, and even we've had white guests on uh, since we started our first session. Still have really not bumped into anyone, and certainly no mainstream media coverage. Hey, Peyton Ginger and all this has happened before, and even more so now with the tragedy in Texas nearly two dozen children staff members killed uh, now Buffalo yeah, that's old news you know we forgot all about that just like we forgot all about Harold Glee uh, Harold Green Glenn Dunn Joseph McCoy Emmanuel Thomas all the black male victims that we heard about last week and more to come this week the audio segment that we heard at the beginning that was from the documentary film 67 Buffalo Uprising uh, by filmmaker 
Doug Ruffin, black male, victim of white supremacy. You heard him voiced uh, in the audio clip. Uh, you also heard uh, the great Gary Bird. Uh, I know many folks are familiar with his many years of counter-racist uh, radio broadcasting. Uh, but some of the things that they talked about, the great migration, again, we did read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons in the Book Club. And so many times where that's talked about black people trying to get away from white terrorism uh, in the southern U.S. and going to other places like Buffalo, New York. Uh, we also heard Bethlehem steal the draw of getting a better job. I said, wow, that sounds exactly like what we heard in the book we just finished. Essie Mae Washington Williams, didn't she talk about that? Black people coming from the South, like worthless Negro from Virginia, Zachariah Walker coming to Pennsylvania and Buffalo, places like that to get jobs in the steel factory. Better than being out in the plantation, right? They also said Bethlehem Steel, religion of white supremacy. Also within that segment, they said that in Buffalo, the epicenter of where the black people resided was Jefferson Avenue. That is exactly where the Topps grocery store is. That was the site of Peyton Gendron's white terrorist attack a little over a week ago. Jefferson Avenue and the Buffalo Challenger now the Challenger Community News also located on Jefferson Avenue black newspaper right in Buffalo they were hugely helpful uh, to this week's episode of the cows in our book study and getting me some of the archival material on Joseph Christopher the 22 caliber killer a couple quick things before we get uh, to the book club just again you heard in the segment black people coming there they don't escape racism white supremacy it just takes a different form all of the frustrations and not having a place for children to play in fact some of these very same frustrations that you heard from black people in the 1960s 60 years later you hear the exact same things problems being reported by black residents of Buffalo really anywhere in the world where black people reside three quick things and then we'll go ahead and get to the book club one we should have uh, journalist Matt Greida as a guest on the program on Monday uh, he wrote the book Joey 22 which is about Joseph Christopher exact same thing that we're reading now again I'm only aware of two books on the incidents these events both written by white authors who is more informed about racism Anyway, as I was reading that book, he starts his book placing these events in context. He immediately mentions that this was happening. Uh, these killings of black males in Buffalo and New York State was happening at the same time as the Atlanta child murders and a number of other cases. And so he cites a Washington Post article. I was able to track that article down. It is from October 1980. The title Murders of Blacks Baffle U.S. Officials. I shared it on social media quickly. The assistant engineer in a Buffalo plant was grabbing lunch at a Burger King. This is Harold Green. When a man walked up to him and shot him in the head, the two, the two teenage boys in Cincinnati were heading to a store to buy sodas. Heard that before when they were gunned down. The two black youths 
in Salt Lake City were jogging with two white girls through Liberty Park when the boys were slain in a sniper's ambush. They were among 24 black Americans and two white women who were with black men, cowbell, at the time who have been slain in a string of murders in a city in seven cities across the nation over the last 15 months. And it goes on from there. Hopefully we'll be able to get some of the material talking about this entire context of terrorism that was happening at the 1980, very early 1980s. We'll include some of that as we go, because I think that is so important. And it would seem a collective amnesia amongst victims of racism. I do hear some people that know about the Atlanta child murders, but all of these other incidents, they mentioned Indianapolis and Oklahoma City. I didn't know anything about these places. Think, and when I say these places, meaning murders of black people happening in these U.S. cities during the same time period, 1980, 1981, as these other cases, Joseph Christopher, the Atlanta child murders. That's one super important. Check that article out. And in some of these other cases, as I find information, I will share myself. And then the last two tidbits, these are both from uh, Matt Grida's book, Joey 22. He'll be he'll be with us uh, this coming Monday. Normal broadcast time. Two quick points. The first, Emmanuel Thomas, third victim, black male killed uh, by the 22 caliber sniper, 22 caliber killer, excuse me. We talked last week. Many folks said that they were, you know, really taken aback with all this talk about how he was unemployed and no count, you know, worthless black males. And they thought that could be racism by the author. The employment status of Mr. Thomas is talked about in Matt Greider's book. This is what he says. Authorities learned from Mrs. Thomas and friends of the family that even though Emmanuel had recently been out of work, he had been slated to return to employment within a week of his murder. His mother, Clara, tearfully lamented to a Courier Express reporter so many times he'd come over here to use the phone, call people for a job, Ask them, beg them, why would anyone in the world kill him? Why? I will never know. Thomas, who had recently joined the choir at Buffalo's New Macedonian Church of God, had worked on the painting of the Peace Bridge linking Buffalo with Fort Erie, Ontario, and on the new Buffalo Hilton Hotel instead of a 32nd birthday celebration which would have happened four days after the day of the killing a funeral was held i thought that was important because that's even though that's quick and that courier express article i have it i can post it if folks want to check it out you can get it online all that archival newspaper footage is online for new york state pretty much but i thought that was so important because she said this wasn't someone who was just sitting around and, oh, you know, I don't have a job. Let me watch Jerry Springer and eat Cheetos. Like she said, he was trying to get a begging for a job. Worthless Negro. Number two. Uh, Glenn Dunn, 14-year-old black male, first person murdered September of 1980. 
I didn't think this information was included last week, and I thought it should have been. So I'm going to add this, and then we'll get to the audio. This is all in Matt Greider's book. He'll be with us on Monday. As cruel evidence of the festering thread of racial hatred very much still alive at the time, the September 27, 1980 funeral of Glenn Dunn was marred by a terrible racist display. Two vehicles full of white males screamed out racist slurs as they drove past the standing room only crowd that had gathered outside St. Paul's Missionary Baptist Church on Kingsley Street during the late morning service. Horrified mourners told police some of these white males flew past the scene in a brown pickup truck and the others followed in a blue compact car which bore a grotesque display of a mannequin's head mounted on the hood. The funeral had attracted about 500 people to pay their last respects to a boy many hadn't even known, but who had tragically ended up the first of the four black victims shot that week in Buffalo and Niagara Falls. Because the Kingsley Street Church was small, many had to stand outside for the service which had started at about 10 a.m. A number of the mourners reported to police that these foul-mouthed white men had smeared themselves with red paint and had drawn facsimile bullet holes on their bare upper bodies to further their denigration of the funeral service. Distracted by their grief the mourners failed to take down the license plate numbers of the two vehicles. Unfortunately, no one was ever arrested for that vicious prank, which brought only more tears to the eyes of the many mourners at the service. I will stop there. This is corroborated. There are newspaper reports that also mention this, I don't know, I was going to say, with barbarous act not just enough to kill a 14-year-old unarmed black male who's sitting in a parking sitting in a East Buffalo Tops grocery store parking lot but then after we blow his brains out we get a gang of race soldiers to come and terrorize everyone at the funeral no one remembers this this is not included at all when we every day or at least before everything happened in Texas at least for a little while sitting around talking about Topps grocery store every day and no mention of this at all in the exact same city almost on the exact same street what's that tacky cliche they say those who do not learn from history we will get started context of white supremacy absolute madness Catherine Pellinero audio segment one let's go Buffalo let's go Buffalo chapter four Thursday September 25th 1980. You might say it looks like the cousin of the son of Sam is on the loose. An unnamed investigator was quoted in the Courier Express. 
one of Buffalo's two major newspapers. The same article stated that police were investigating the strong possibility that a single assailant was responsible for all four attacks, but noted that ballistics tests from the Niagara Falls slaying were still pending. Chief Leo Donovan had declined to elaborate on the lab results, but a source had informed the courier that tests indicated the same gun had been used in both of the Buffalo shootings and the one in Cheektowaga. Son of Sam was a reference to serial killer David Berkowitz, whose highly publicized ambush attacks across New York City had ended three years earlier with his arrest on August 10, 1977. Berkowitz had christened himself Son of Sam in taunting notes he began leaving at the scenes of his crimes. Prior to that, he had been known as the 44 caliber killer because of the 44 caliber charter arms bulldog he had used in his street shootings of random victims. Thanks to an endless flow of screaming tabloid headlines that had been reprinted as far away as the Soviet Union, the moniker Son of Sam had become known throughout the world as a synonym for demented serial killer. In all likelihood, few residents of western New York were ready to contemplate the idea that there could actually be a serial killer on the loose here. That kind of thing happened in much larger and more exotic places, like San Francisco and, of course, New York City. Not in Buffalo. Though it was the second largest city in the state, Buffalo ran a distant second to the so-called Big Apple, with its multi-million citizens living on top of one another in their own chaotic filth and lawlessness, as some Buffalonians might have put it. In terms of crime, culture, and social mores, the distance between Buffalo and its tawdry behemoth cousin downstate was much greater than the 450 geographic miles that separated the two. Even with their notorious Son of Sam killer now long off the streets, New York City's crime index had increased at a rate greater than 50% of the national average in the first six months of 1980 alone. Officials were predicting that 1980 would be a record year for crime in that city, a prediction that eventually proved true. While Buffalo certainly had its own problems with rising crime, most residents were more concerned about the hobbled economy than anything else. Serial murder in the city of good neighbors, as Buffalo was called, seemed about as far off the radar as another population boom. Though an article in the Buffalo Evening News, the city's other major newspaper, likewise stated that the same gun had been used to shoot three of the victims, and included the composite sketch of a white suspect circulated by Cheektowaga police for the Harold Green assault. Both papers mentioned the uncertainty about whether a single shooter was responsible. The Courier Express noted confusion about the assailant's race. Witnesses to the Thomas and McCoy homicides claimed the gunman was white. For Harold Green, one had described a white suspect, upon which the composite was based, while others said they were unsure and that the man who fled the scene may have been black. Of the Glenn Dunn murder, witnesses said at first the gunman was white, but then said they were uncertain as to his color. Both papers reported that Harold Green remained in critical condition on life support and unable to give police any information. A Chictawaga police lieutenant expressed dismay that the composite sketch hadn't produced any witnesses. 
The shooting happened at the noon hour, and the place had to be packed. Somebody should have seen something. Officers would continue canvassing the area businesses and restaurants. The public was meanwhile encouraged to look at the composite drawing and contact police with any information on the suspect, further described as a white male, 30 to 35 years old, 5 foot 10, 165 pounds, with a very pale complexion and a chubby face with small dark eyes. He had been wearing a pork pie hat, dark blue work shirt, khaki pants, and white sneakers. The courier gave some background on each of the victims. According to the article, high school student Glenn Dunn, killed in a stolen car, had been accused of sexually attacking a girl in August, but no criminal charge had been filed at the insistence of the victim. Emmanuel Thomas's drug arrest of six years before was mentioned, as was Harold Green's career as a rising engineer at Moog. Joseph McCoy was reported to have run-ins with the law in Niagara Falls years earlier, stemming from drinking and disorderly conduct. But according to police captain Raymond Cum, McCoy had been straight for the last several years. A separate article featured photos of all four victims and comments from their loved ones and acquaintances. Glenn Dunn's relatives said that another family member, not Glenn, was responsible for the sexual attack on the girl. Harold Green's family spoke of his modest hobbies, photography, playing the saxophone, and building stereo components, and how they viewed Harold as their guardian angel. He was truly brilliant, said his sister. He was not a pompous person, and he just took what was given him in stride. I think that's the thing that troubles us. If he was the kind of guy who was looking for trouble, maybe we could understand it. But he was serious, hard-working, kept to himself, nothing but his family. He shunned trouble. Emmanuel Thomas's life as a family man was highlighted, his former neighbors describing him as always respectable and telling of the backyard barbecues he had with his wife and daughters. Emmanuel had recently joined the choir, at a local church. His mother, Clara Thomas, spoke tearfully of his efforts to find work. So many times he'd come over here to use the phone, call people up for a job, ask them, beg them, she was quoted. Why would anyone in the world kill him? Why? I will never know. Emmanuel would be buried Saturday on what would have been his 32nd birthday. Joseph McCoy had no enemies, and his killing was senseless, his family said. He had last worked as a custodian for a community center about two years earlier. He left behind three brothers, two sisters, and his parents. Joseph had helped care for his elderly father, who was paralyzed from a series of strokes. Speaking of his late brother's murder, Robert McCoy said, He was just minding his own business taking a walk like he does every day. Joe didn't have anything that anyone would want. He stressed that his brother had no enemies. He was convinced the shooting had been random since Joe had virtually no white friends. No one who knew the victims could think of a motive. The police could not offer a motive either, beyond the obvious. This guy, if it is the same guy, seems to be indiscriminately shooting black males.
one officer commented. Chief Leo Donovan took a more reserved approach in his comments, stating that the investigation was ongoing, but acknowledged that there were so many similarities that we cannot afford to not explore the possibility that the same person is responsible. According to the Courier Express, several investigators noted that the movie Death Wish had been on TV the previous weekend, and they wondered if the film had maybe spurred a psychotic killer into action. Death Wish told the fictional story of everyman Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson, who takes to the streets as a gun-toting vigilante following the vicious murder of his wife and rape of his daughter during a home invasion. Though highly controversial and roundly criticized for its perceived glorification of vigilantism, the film had struck a chord with audiences upon its release in 1974 and became a box office smash. The Buffalo Evening News and local TV station WKBW offered a joint reward of $1,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the suspect or suspects. The reward would cover the fatal shooting in Niagara Falls as well if police established a link with the Buffalo and Chictawaga attacks. I'd like to say there's no connection between this homicide and the three other shootings, a Niagara Falls police captain was quoted, but I can't say that. Though scientific comparisons had yet to be done on the bullets that killed Joseph McCoy, word had spread quickly throughout law enforcement that they were twenty-two caliber slugs. As cautious as police may have been about jumping to conclusions of a serial killer in their midst, the specter of Son of Sam still loomed, differences between New York City and Buffalo notwithstanding. It could happen here, unthinkable as it might seem. After his capture, David Berkowitz had written a letter to the New York Post giving his improbable explanation that a demon-possessed dog had urged him to kill, ending the letter with a cryptic warning that was perhaps not so improbable. There are other sons out there. God help the world. Chief Donovan and his fellow lawmen hoped to God they didn't have a Sam or a Paul Kersey out there. They definitely didn't want to raise the possibility with the media, particularly when such a presumption would have been premature and especially since it could spark widespread fear and panic, like the Son of Sam case had in New York City. Cooler heads had to prevail here. Western New York needed a panic like they needed another crippling blizzard or factory closing. At the same time, Donovan realized that a downplay of the situation or an overly zealous withholding of information could provoke the same result. A news photographer had been allowed to snap a picture of the meeting held that morning in Donovan's office. The photo appeared prominently in the Buffalo Evening News under the title Grim Agenda and showed Leo Donovan in conference with Lieutenants Henry Zablotny and Fred Netzel from Cheektowaga, and from Niagara Falls, Lieutenant John Zaccarella and Captain Raymond Cum. Better to give the public a visual assurance that top law enforcement agencies in western New York were giving the crimes immediate and serious attention. Following the PR photo, the photographer and any lingering reporters were cordially shown the door. The actual meeting preceded in private. 
not that the assembled commanders knew much more than what had already been relayed or leaked to the newspapers. They agreed to work jointly on the cases and share information. Additional officers would be assigned to homicide. Canvassing of neighborhoods and re-questioning of witnesses would be given high priority. Nevertheless, they were all aware of the challenge they faced if this did turn out to be the work of a rogue with a warped agenda. The most difficult homicides to solve are those where killer and victim are absolute strangers and have contact for only a matter of seconds. Unlike the first three shootings, no shell casings had been found at the Niagara Falls crime scene. Witnesses claimed that the gunman had held a paper bag to Joseph McCoy's head and fired with the gun still in the bag. This explained the absence of casings. They had ejected into the paper bag. To police, it also indicated that the killer might be following media accounts of his crimes and learning from his mistakes. He obviously had the savvy to stop leaving his shell casings behind. He was also brazen, obviously undeterred by the presence of witnesses. Two of the attacks had occurred in broad daylight, at times in places where there were bound to be plenty of people around. Aside from the hats and hoodie sweatshirt he apparently wore during the Dunn murder, there were no indications he had tried to disguise or otherwise conceal his face. On the question of what their suspect looked like, in light of the conflicting eyewitness descriptions, the most reasonable deduction appeared to be a young or youngish white male, who was neither particularly tall nor particularly short. Not particularly anything, in fact, as far as any distinguishing characteristics that might set him apart from the hundreds of thousands of other white males under 35 in western New York. Frenchy Cook, Emmanuel Thomas's walking companion, appeared to be the only person thus far with whom the shooter had communicated in any way prior to striking. Officers in Buffalo's Precinct 12 were on a quest for a woman named Diane or Dorothy, whom the suspect had said he was looking for immediately before shooting Thomas. So far, this had been a dead end. There were indeed some Dianes and Dorothys living in the area, more than a few, and, of course, Emmanuel Thomas's own wife was named Dorothy. But police did not find any so-named woman in the neighborhood with a connection to a white male who might be out stalking the street with a gun. Dorothy Thomas had no white male associates, nor any romantic attachments in her life other than her late husband, and the Diane-slash-Dorothy trail seemed cold. Of the two best witnesses to the Harold Green shooting, Linda Snyder had given a detailed description of the suspect's clothing and build, and placed his age as early twenties. She could not determine his race because she had only seen him from behind, as he ran from Harold Green's car, and the brim of his hat had been pulled down over his ears, concealing his hair color. Witness Dominic Puntillero, who had provided the description upon which the composite sketch was based, had also said the suspect wore a hat, but he had gotten a facial view, since he had looked up and noticed the man walking in the direction of Green's car just before hearing the shots. Puntillero said the suspect was white, with a very pale complexion, guessing his age as early to mid-thirties. None of the witnesses to the McCoy shooting had gotten a look at the shooter's face, but had said the man was blonde. 
which seemed to sink with Puntillero's recollection of a pale complexion. Frenchy Cook and other witnesses to the Thomas murder had put the shooter in his late teens to early twenties, but then again it had been late at night. Dominic Puntillero was so far the only witness who had gotten a daylight view of the gunman's face. Glenn Dunn had also been murdered after dark, and it might therefore be more difficult for witnesses to give a good description, if any good witnesses could be found, that is. So far they had only the teen, Kenny Paulson, who had seen the shooting happen but still vacillated on whether the gunman was white or black. For the time being, the police went with what seemed to be the best composite and description they had. White male, 30 to 35, average in every way. If they couldn't get better details than that, this could be like looking for a needle in a stack of needles. Coincidentally, reporter Dan Herbeck had written a feature titled The Buffalo Police Detectives 1980 that had been published in the Buffalo News Magazine on Sunday, September 21st, the day before the murder of Glenn Dunn. It profiled four of Buffalo's veteran detectives, giving readers some lively insight into each man's life and his individual approach to solving crime. In the introduction, Herbeck noted the differences between true-life detectives and their highly glamorized fictional counterparts. Underscoring the challenges of real-world investigative work, Herbeck wrote, Even the best detectives admit that the odds of solving a crime are stacked against them. The number of violent crimes in Buffalo is constantly on the rise. The number of policemen has dropped from 1,400 to less than 1,100 in five years. He continued, The Buffalo police detective, for the most part, is doomed to a life of frustration a life that becomes an endless stretch of phone calls, paperwork, interviews, and loose ends, most of which will never be tied. It is a life of tips that usually lead nowhere. The composite sketch in the newspaper, combined with the potent tonic of a reward, had right away generated tips from callers. An officer in the Buffalo Homicide Bureau had dutifully typed them up on a P-73 form that was delivered to Chief Donovan's inbox that same night. For the most part, they were the type of pseudo-tips one might expect from an unremarkable sketch and such a generic description. Typical were the call from a man who reported that about a month before, a white dude who rides a motorcycle believed to be a member of the Hells Angels got beat up by a black man on Genesee Street in a fight over a stolen TV set. The caller thought the unknown white biker was seeking revenge. He tried to find out the guy's name or license plate and call back. Another came from a woman who refused to identify herself and said only that the composite looked like the owner of a downtown liquor store. The very last call on the P-73 was different, though. It came from a middle-aged woman named Mammy Brooks, who worked as a nurse at Deaconess Hospital. Ms. Brooks said that a co-worker of hers, a young white girl named Gloria, had a teenage brother who had witnessed the shooting at the Topps parking lot. Gloria and her brother are afraid to call the police, Ms. Brooks explained, but she was trying to coax them into doing so. 
The teenage boy was coming out of the grocery store and saw a white guy walking up to the car and shoot the victim in the head. The boy is afraid to call because he knows who the guy is. Also, the guy is not as old as the news estimates his age. He's in his twenties, and he might possibly live in the area of Genesee Street, in close proximity of the homicide. Chapter 5 September 26th through October 7th, 1980 Weapon tied to Falls' death. Two city killings. Read a headline in the Buffalo Evening News on Friday, September 26th. A bullet used to kill Joseph McCoy had been positively matched to a bullet from Harold Green, which had already been linked to the Dunn and Thomas murders. Now that the four shootings had been scientifically linked, little doubt remained that a serial killer had struck. The greatest fear in such situations, of course, is that the offender will strike again. None of the police officials had yet mentioned this to the press, but it was hardly necessary for a generation raised on syndicated news and national TV coverage of the son of Sam, Ted Bundy, and the Zodiac Killer, the last of whom had never been apprehended. Leo Donovan hoped that the suspect would take a cue from some of his homicidal brethren and make contact with police preferably to turn himself in. But any contact would have been welcomed. Both of the region's major newspapers quoted Donovan, I was hoping we'd see some word from him, either a phone call or a letter. If he would talk, maybe we could get him to realize that he's not going to come to any harm if he surrenders, but he has to stop hurting innocent people. While the killer had so far remained silent, the public had not. Buffalo police had received more than 200 tip calls by Friday morning while Cheektowaga police had about 125, and Niagara Falls about 50. Each call had to be vetted and checked out. This was in addition to the standard work of re-canvassing, witness follow-up, and checking files for prior offenders who might have a history of assaults or violent run-ins with blacks. Press coverage that day included Chief Donovan's speculation that the suspect may be a psychopath who hates black people and a plea from Lieutenant John Zaccarella of Niagara Falls. We're asking the general public to help us, Zaccarella was quoted. If anyone sees this guy or anyone who looks like him, call the police immediately. The newspapers repeated the suspect's description and, in the case of the Buffalo Evening News, the reward being offered, and the calls kept coming. Phone tips were not the only reaction from the community. On Wednesday night, a white man walking near the scene of Joseph McCoy's murder in Niagara Falls had been stopped by some black residents who spotted a handle protruding from a paper bag he was carrying. Police converged on the scene, only to discover that the item in the bag was a hacksaw the man had just bought at a local store. The only new information from police was that they were going to try hypnosis on a witness to the Harold Green shooting to see if it might bring forth any new details. According to reports, the witness had suggested hypnosis. With no new solid developments to write of, other than investigators' theory that the suspect has a grievance, real or imagined, against black men, 
and he has chosen murder as a means to vent that grievance, the Courier Express conducted an informal survey around the black community to ascertain whether the crimes were causing heightened fear. None of the handful of black men interviewed expressed an undue amount of concern for his own safety, although the article stated that the community was cautious. One man, identified as a retired auto plant worker, blamed the shootings on the high unemployment and inflation, coupled with the problems presented by school integration. The pastor of an Eastside church commented that incidents like this often happened in large cities, and that drinking and the use of dope also may have had something to do with the shootings, while an employee of an Eastside tavern said, Shootings are an everyday thing with me, so I'm always overly cautious to avoid becoming a victim of some nut. The person doing the shooting is the type of animal I would like to run into because he would learn he would be dealing with an animal himself. I deal with psychos every day, so one more nut will be nothing new to me. On Saturday, September 27th, lacking the real name of the gunman, the media gave him one, the twenty-two caliber killer. The Courier Express reiterated that the victims were not linked in any way and that hate for blacks was a possible motive, a hatred that permits him to kill indiscriminately. The Buffalo Evening News quoted Chief Donovan, The people he has killed, I believe, were killed at random. Whatever reason he chose for picking those people, we have no idea. A separate article offered the opinion of experts that the offender would probably kill again. September 27th was also the date of two disturbing occurrences, which, in hindsight, might have been considered a jarring preview of things to come. Glenn Dunn, the first and youngest victim, was buried that morning. A large crowd had gathered in the chill fall air to pay last respects. During the graveside service, two vehicles described as a dark blue compact car and an old brown pickup truck came driving by. Two white males were seated in the blue car. A mannequin head stained with what looked like blood was mounted on the hood. The driver and passenger of the blue car shouted taunts and racial slurs at the mourners. The brown pickup truck that followed behind had two or more white males, with red coloring on their faces, who also yelled epithets at the crowd. Multiple police units responded to the numerous 911 calls on the incident, but both vehicles were long gone. Officers took a report and remained in the area until the funeral service ended. The Dunn family was visibly shaken by what had happened, as were all the others in attendance at the boys' funeral, as well as the residents of this black neighborhood who had been drawn to their windows by the shouting. No one had gotten a license plate on either vehicle, and the police cruising the area did not find any vehicles matching the descriptions. East of the city, police in Chictawaga received a call that evening from an assistant manager at the Burger King where Harold Green had been shot. Someone, it sounded like an adult white male, had called the restaurant and said, I'm leaving you this message that I'm going to kill another nigger. The assistant manager had hung up and immediately called police and her supervisor who told her to put on a security man for the rest of the night and to call police when employees were leaving. 
One of the most intriguing leads that the Buffalo police received came early on from a detective in Cincinnati, Ohio. Gus Gromke of the Cincinnati Police Department had read about the four unsolved shootings and called the Buffalo Homicide Bureau. Detective Gromke wanted to know if the cases were similar to the recent sniper shootings around Salt Lake City, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati. Several black men and boys had been wounded or killed by ambush attacks from a sniper. In May, a rather prominent civil rights activist named Vernon Jordan had been shot and seriously wounded in Indiana. In June, two black teenage boys had been killed in Cincinnati, and a month earlier, in August, two black men had been murdered in a park in Salt Lake City in the same manner. The guns used were a forty-four Magnum, a thirty-aught six, and a thirty-five millimeter. A suspect by the name of Joseph Paul Franklin had been captured in Florence, Kentucky, on September twenty-fifth but he had escaped through a window at the police station and was currently at large. Franklin was thirty years old, five feet eleven, two hundred pounds, and had brown hair with blonde streaks. He had tattoos, one of them a hammer and sickle on his left forearm. Franklin was apparently a virulent racist and consummate criminal, suspected in a number of other shootings, bombings, and bank robberies. Buffalo Detective Gerald Dove gave Detective Gromke details on the Western New York shootings and asked for a report on the Joseph Paul Franklin investigation. It was certainly a lead worth following, particularly if Franklin made a habit of traveling the eastern part of the United States in search of black victims and employed a variety of guns in his sniper attacks. Sadly, there seemed to be no shortage in the country of serial murderers targeting innocent black victims. A prolific serial killer in Atlanta, Georgia, had been claiming the lives of children and adolescents in a spree that had begun in the summer of 1979. There were more than a dozen homicides to date, with the murderer still on the loose. Aside from the race of the victims, though, there were no commonalities between the Atlanta murders sometimes referred to as the Atlanta child murders and the twenty-two caliber killings. Joseph Paul Franklin seemed a much more promising possibility. However, many in law enforcement had a strong feeling that the twenty-two caliber killer was not likely to be an out-of-town drifter. He seemed too familiar with his surroundings, too confident about his escape routes, and his ability to blend in. Sunday newspapers across the state ran stories about the shootings in western New York. Even the venerable New York Times had taken note and reported on the crimes and the progress of the investigation. The local papers, meanwhile, were filled with prominent coverage of the case, from reports of the harassment at Glenn Dunn's funeral, to community reactions, to speculations about what might happen next, and opinions on what should be done. Police were candid in stating that they hadn't yet had any breaks. The Courier Express quoted Homicide Chief Leo Donovan, We don't have much to go on. What makes this case so frustrating is that he may kill again. We don't know who he is. We don't know what his motive is. Reporter Eric Brady wrote that most murder cases are a question of who done it, 
but this one is a matter of finding who done it before he does it again. Once more, comparisons with the son of Sam abounded. But this was no ordinary serial killer. The fact that the three dead and one critically injured victim were all black males, and the assailant a white male, presented an even more insidious, overarching threat to a region already under significant stress. Even now, less than a week into the investigation, fears of racial discord and vigilantism were looming. The big question was whether the shootings were, in fact, racially motivated. If they were, or were even perceived as such, and authorities were not able to provide a swift resolution, what might be the ramifications? Columnist Henry Locke wrote an article featuring comments and concerns from several civil rights leaders in the area, some of whom feared that paranoia might develop in the black community, which could lead to worse incidents. Amid the speculations that a hate group could be responsible, and that citizens might start arming themselves for protection against the assassin or assassins, some took a more pragmatic, though no less cautionary, view. The sad thing about the questions being raised, said Donald R. Lee, a former president of the New York State Conference of the NAACP, is that the murderer's actions could possibly trigger some negative reactions between black and white citizens, when in reality it is only some nut out there blowing people away. Leo Donovan appealed for calm. He also made another plea for the killer to contact him, promising that if he would do so, he would not be hurt and he would receive psychiatric care. The man is sick and he needs help, Donovan said. Maybe he will realize this, and if he reads this in the paper, I hope he will contact me in some way. Then, as if thinking aloud, Donovan continued, On the other hand, he may have a catch-me-if-you-can attitude. That's the whole thing. We don't know what kind of a sociopath or psychotic we're dealing with. Chief Donovan and Commissioner James Cunningham assured the public that the police were working around the clock. All 20 detectives in the homicide squad were working on the case, in addition to detectives from individual precincts. There were, of course, other homicide cases to be worked, but all city detectives were now also involved in this investigation. Officers were going door-to-door -door in neighborhoods around the crime scenes in search of more information. Donovan stressed the need for help from the public. We're hoping for a break, for some clue to turn up. What we don't want is for someone else to get hurt. We are afraid of not finding a clue until he strikes again. This fear was shared by some prominent black citizens in the community, who were not content to wait and hope for clues, and certainly not for the killer to strike again. Reverend Bennett W. Smith, age 47, was the pastor of St. John Baptist Church on Goodell Street, in the heart of Buffalo's black community. Known for his passionate and inspirational sermons, Smith had been the pastor of this large church since 1972. Beyond his work as a clergyman, or rather, as an extension of it, Bennett Smith worked actively for civil rights causes and fair housing. He had been a part of Dr. Martin Luther King's famous march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama. 
He was a close friend and colleague of the Reverend Jesse Jackson and served as coordinator for the Buffalo branch of Jackson's Operation Push, which stood for People United to Save Humanity, later changed to People United to Serve Humanity, an organization devoted to the economic advancement of blacks and black-owned businesses. In an interview with the Courier Express, Reverend Smith announced a drive within the city's black community to raise a reward fund for information leading to the arrest of the twenty-two caliber killer. He asked that black churches in the area collect donations and turn them into Operation Push, which would hold the money in a special reward fund. Smith noted that while the black community was not in a panic, which he noted was a good thing, the shootings had instilled an underlying sense of terror. The situation called for not only swift action, but also results. If this man is not caught by Monday, Smith said, black leaders will have to get together and move on this case. Bennett Smith already had plans to do so. He told the newspaper that he had a meeting scheduled on Monday with Fletcher Graves, head of the regional office of the United States Justice Department's Community Relations Division in New York City. Mr. Graves was flying in for the meeting, which would also be attended by Buffalo Police Commissioner James Cunningham, the district attorney, and Daniel Acker, president of the local chapter of the NAACP. The meeting had come about as a result of a phone call Fletcher Graves had made on Friday to Daniel Acker. According to Acker, Graves had inquired about the killings and asked if he thought it would be necessary to bring the FBI in on the case. Daniel Acker had told the Justice Department official that it would be a good idea, as he felt the FBI would be able to mount a more concentrated effort to capture the killer. Acker had expressed his concerns about a police slowdown in the area due to the department's ongoing contract negotiations, adding, and I know the police are dragging their feet in certain instances. Also, they have more murders than they can handle, so I think any help we can get from the outside would be good. Asked for a comment, Erie County District Attorney Edward Cosgrove took exception to involving the FBI. He did not feel there were any grounds to do so, and expressed confidence in the way the investigation was being handled by Homicide Chief Leo Donovan. Cosgrove did not think Mr. Acker or anyone else should have concerns about the ability of local law enforcement officials to look into this problem, adding that he had not been invited to a meeting with a Justice Department official. Cosgrove said, I would be courteous to anyone who wanted to discuss this, but I would not be responsive to asking the FBI into the case. In fact, I would discourage it. Daniel Acker had his doubts about the ability of local law enforcement, any local law enforcement, anywhere, to successfully handle such an investigation without assistance and oversight from federal authorities. Acker was 70 years old, married, the father of three adult children. He had been president of the Buffalo branch of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, since 1972. Personally and professionally, Daniel Acker had learned and experienced quite a lot in his seven decades of life. He had been born and raised in the coal-mining town of Williamson, West Virginia. As a young man, he had earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry and Education from West Virginia State University 
and his master's degree in the same fields at the University of Michigan. He had spent his early career as a teacher, first in elementary school, and then as an instructor of chemistry and physics at Liberty High School in his hometown, before opting for a career in industrial chemistry. A chemical plant in West Virginia offered him a position, but withdrew the offer when they discovered he was black. During World War II, however, with the government in great need of skilled chemists, he was hired by the Trojan Powder Company in Sandusky, Ohio, and assigned to the Plumbrook Ordnance Works, which Trojan Powder maintained, where he worked on advanced chemical and defense-related developments, including the Manhattan Project. Acker had moved his family to Buffalo in 1944, when he received an offer from Lind Air, a division of Union Carbide. While he had enjoyed a fruitful career as a chemist at Lind that spanned over thirty years, life in his adopted city had not been without its challenges. When Daniel Acker bought a home for his family in upscale North Buffalo in 1950, hostile neighbors dug up their shrubs. In the 1960s, recognizing the need for decent housing for blacks in the area and the myriad of obstacles they faced in finding it, he co-founded an organization called HOME, Housing Opportunities Made Equal. Always a great believer in education and an advocate of civil rights and community involvement, Acker had led the charge for the desegregation in Buffalo Public Schools, filing a class-action lawsuit in 1976 in his role as NAACP president. Daniel Acker had seen his share of racial hostilities and he understood all too well, perhaps more keenly than local law enforcement, no matter how sincere and well-intentioned they might be, the threat that a racially motivated assassin on the prowl could pose to victims, both intended and unintended, to both black and white. Police had spent the weekend pursuing leads and questioning more than a few men who had either caught their attention or been brought to it. Interestingly, they had received another tip on the owner of a certain liquor store in downtown Buffalo. The first had come from the anonymous female who had called the Homicide Bureau, but the source of the second was a police officer who definitely felt the man should be questioned. The liquor store owner not only resembled the Cheektowaga composite sketch, but he had also been making threats that he was going to get even for what happened to his wife. Detectives paid a visit to the man, who was white and thirty-five years old. They were somewhat surprised to find him dressed like the suspect described in the Chictawaga composite. They were even more surprised when the man readily admitted that he looked like the composite, and further, that even though he wasn't the shooter, he liked people thinking that he was. He said he had indeed been telling people on the street that he was going to get even for what happened to his wife. When detectives asked what had happened to her, the man pulled out some news clippings to show them. Four years ago, his wife had been shot twice in the stomach by three black males during a holdup. The three perpetrators, two in their late teens and one juvenile, had been arrested. According to the liquor store owner, one of them was still in prison but only had a year to go on his sentence. Far from being reluctant to speak with police, the liquor store owner talked to Blue Streak. 
He told the detectives that he worked days as a physical education teacher at a Buffalo public school and invited them to contact the school's principal to check him out. He said he did not have a pistol permit or any guns. The detectives searched him anyway. He bragged about his education and claimed he had helped police in some investigations. He had 40 credit hours in psychology courses, he said, and commented, You know, it takes about four years for the mind to snap. When detectives asked what he meant by that, he wouldn't elaborate. He did say that he'd been telling people on the street that he was a suspect in the twenty-two caliber killings. It gave him a feeling of power, he said, adding that he wasn't afraid of any blacks coming after him. Detective Gerald Dove and his partner, meanwhile, followed up on the tip call from Mammy Brooks, the nurse who claimed that her co-worker, Gloria, had told her that her younger brother had witnessed the shooting of Glenn Dunn. After speaking with Ms. Brooks, detectives spoke with a supervisor at the hospital who told them that there were two employees named Gloria. One was named Gloria Paulson, and she lived on Floss Avenue. These details immediately rang a bell with detectives. Kenny Paulson of Floss Avenue had given a statement to police on the Glen Dunn homicide. They paid a visit to the Paulson household. Neither Gloria nor Kenny was at home. Their mother said that Kenny had left for the Buffalo Bills football game and wouldn't be back until later. She gave them the name of his employer but said that if they wanted to interview Kenny, they'd have to try and get him some evening after work. Harold Green died at 7.45 on Sunday, September 28th. He had never regained consciousness. Now there were four dead men, but no prime suspects. If the black community had not been in a panic before, the large print headlines on Monday morning announcing Harold Green's death all but assured they would be now. Twenty-two caliber gunman's fourth victim dies. The newspapers reported that though the same gun had been used in all four murders, the possibility existed of more than one shooter. Given the wide discrepancies in witness descriptions of the assailant, the killings could be the work of two or more men working together, with the same gruesome objective. The murderer of Glenn Dunn and Emmanuel Thomas had been described as a young, slight man in his twenties. Harold Green's killer was said to be a taller man in his thirties. Joseph McCoy had reportedly been shot by a man with long blonde hair. Leo Donovan had been in this line of work long enough to know that bystanders— even the most well-meaning of them, often see things differently. While he could not dismiss the possibility of more than one gunman, he considered it remote. What Donovan really hoped for was that his men could find a witness who would give them accurate and sufficient details for a new composite sketch, something better than the everyman drawing that was circulating now. Throughout Sunday and the early part of the following week, Buffalo police were checking blue cars. Officers had fanned out in the neighborhoods where Emmanuel Thomas and Glenn Dunn had been shot and took down the license plates of nearly every blue car in the area. Based on a witness tip, they were particularly interested in four-door Chevy Impalas. Door-to-door -door canvassing on Zenner Street, where Emmanuel had been killed, had so far not produced anything but a couple of wild goose chases, 
A few teenage boys who had boasted of seeing the shooting to their friends admitted that they had been home in bed and had only heard the shots, or nothing at all. One of the early witnesses at the scene, the teenage girl who had come downtown to give a statement, had fingered her former boyfriend as the shooter. Police had immediately gone to the boyfriend's home and discovered he had an alibi and people to back up his whereabouts at the time of the murder. Further checking revealed that the girl had psychiatric problems. Another witness to the Thomas shooting, a young man who had given police a description of the shooter's getaway car, went to Precinct 16 to report that he had been harassed. He had been walking to the bar at the corner of Zenner and East Ferry when two white men in a light blue compact car drove by, and the passenger said to him, All niggers should die, followed by POW. The young man went into the bar, but when he came out a few minutes later, the car, which had been parked on the east side of Zenner facing Ferry, began following him. He ran into a yard and came around the fences in the rear to reach his own home on Zenner Street. He and his mother looked out their window and watched the car go by three times, but they could not call police because they didn't have a phone. His mother thought it was the same car she had seen on the night of the Emmanuel Thomas shooting. The only description the young man could give was that both men were white, and the passenger looked about thirty years old, had dark hair and a mustache, and was wearing a blue jacket. Police staked out the area in unmarked vehicles. All marked police cars were instructed to keep away from the immediate location, but to cruise nearby streets for any sign of the suspect vehicle. The blue car that the young man had described also sounded very similar to the one used to harass mourners at Glenn Dunn's funeral. Whether the suspects were actual killers or just sadistic tormentors, police wanted to catch them. Despite a lengthy stakeout, however, the compact blue car was never seen again. Detective John Reagan spent that Monday knocking on doors up and down Zenner Street in search of witnesses to the Thomas homicide. Reagan and his partner, Mel Lobbett, had of course been the first detectives at the scene of the Glendun shooting. Since the decree had come that all detectives would work on all the twenty-two caliber cases, Reagan, along with the rest of his colleagues, both in and out of the homicide division, found themselves running down leads collectively, portioning their time among each homicide investigation rather than focusing on one. This system had its advantages and disadvantages. Context of white supremacy. Uh, so we are still in chapter four. Uh, these chapters are what shall I say, irregular uh, in terms of they are not all the same size and they seem to get rather large as we continue. So we will uh, not be ending uh, promptly like at the end of a chapter. So we're just kind of in the middle of chapter four. We'll resume there for our second audio segment. The number to dial is 720 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate again enormous gratitude uh, to the staff 
at the Challenger Community News. Uh, they took time. I pestered and harassed them, and they were so patient and uh, generous with their time and energy in sending me lots of the archives of what the Buffalo Challenger, now the Challenger Community News, uh, what they were printing about all of this at that time period. Uh, so if you want to do some digging uh, and what have you, check out their website. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully I can share some of the articles that they uh, shared with me from this time period as well. Uh, the importance of black journalism. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Even one of their staff members, Catherine Massey, she wrote for the Buffalo uh, Challenger Community or Challenger Community News and uh, the Buffalo Criterion, both black publications, uh, and wrote about racism. She was one of the victims ten days ago. Peyton Gendron, white terrorist. And she had written about guns and all the rest of it. Total disgrace all the way through. Two quick things that I will share before we get to folks who dialed in star six one or I guess make it three. One, you should absolutely be talking about this with your children. I've been asking folks, you know, how you talked about this with your offspring and younger black children, non-white children. But it is mandatory mandatory Glenn Dunn was 14 years old have to talk to your children maybe even have them read this book does not uh, this is not something where you need like a doctorate right I don't think you would have to go and look up words every other paragraph for this book I think if, if you have a, a high school student hey summertime is coming Buffalo just happened summer hey if you need a summer reading list this book is on it if I had a teenager if I had a college student don't think you're gonna come home and just be eating well it wouldn't be Cheetos if they were my offspring but don't think you're just gonna be you know drinking smoothies and doing yoga eating pineapple and dragon fruit all summer long no we you can read to keep that brain active if you're in school read absolute madness so you got to talk to your offspring children and even if they're not your offspring talk to them about this event <sighs> mandatory two reading is more important than watching television I cannot emphasize that enough that is not something just to say that is not just so that you can get books or newspaper articles or whatever the written comp or written information is just to show it off. So, ooh, look at all of my fancy hardback leather bound signed books that I've never read. And ooh, look at this rare one and all that never cut. That's not the purpose at all. The reason I'm sharing I had a number since we've been doing this and so many folks said, you know, no, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know lots of detail myself. Still learning. But lots of folks have said or I've had a number of folks who have shared video content about this film or about these events. 
Joseph G. Christopher. I watch video content. Lots of video content. I will tell you with this case, I did not, and I will even be more specific, it'll be YouTube content. And I mean, hey, everybody watches YouTube. Billions, hey. Uh, but that said, I did not look, or at least not immediately, on YouTube for these events. I was searching for one book. I thought if I could just get one book, that would be the difference. Reference. Then I would be able to put my hands on lots of sources that do include videos because there are videos about this case. They're not documentaries or what have you, but really important video commentary from this time period but it's not on YouTube or Netflix or whatever else it is but if you read you would see it in the reference the other reason reading is so important you cannot include as much information in a film documentary as you can in a book it's just not possible without fail there is way more information in a book than the movie and I mean you can think about it even if you read quickly for a book like this it would probably take mm, a good I'm gonna say a week if you just sat down and you were gonna be dedicated and read it every day even the best I mean all of the video footage that I think people have sent me is less than an hour I haven't seen anything that's like a two hour three hour deep dive I mean that just that doesn't exist the best documentaries are an F compared to a really comprehensive book that's gonna have a reference section generally uh, and I, that's why I generally grouse if they're a book and there's no reference <sighs> But it's way more information. I mean, this, just this week alone, I went back to the library. I said I had went before, and I think I came away with like 25 different reports, which had a nice haul. I was pleased. I went back, searched again, because this time I was just picking the victims' names and other things. I have more information, right? I've been learning. Oh. Literally, and I counted, I picked 88 articles and the only reason I stopped at 88 was out of exhaustion 88 articles and only two were replications meaning I already had these but I just got them anyway to make sure but 88 brand new reports all about this case racism white supremacy lots of details that you will not find if you just kind of look so all of that to say like we have a very television like shallow understanding of most concepts including racism white supremacy reading can be one of the just really pivotal ways of getting an in-depth understanding of subject matter if you would like further evidence like almost all of these I would say all of them of the newspaper articles that are mentioned they're available you can get them like everyone I was just going through highlighting like oop I'm going to get that I'm going to get that anything in the state of New York you can get that if you want to get better at doing research this would be a great case since it's so relevant and so many people are not well informed Oh, and this content is available New York Times covered this you can get all that stuff 
uh, the Buffalo Evening News. You can get all that stuff. Courier Express, you can get all that stuff. Buffalo Challenger, you can get all that. So this is a great way to practice, refine your research skills if you want a summer project. And you will get a lot. If you just want a, a sample, you can go to either my Facebook, Twitter, and just look at all of the content that's there that I put. And that's not even like a quarter. Just to give a sample of some of the information about this case. It is amazing. Tragic at the same time. And then the repetition. Last thing that I'll say, at least for right now, one of our listeners, she mentioned today, Joseph Paul Franklin. A lot of Josephs in this case. She mentions Joseph Paul Franklin. Biblical name, religion of white supremacy. We'll think about that as we proceed. Uh, and I said that's so interesting because he is mentioned in Joey 22, other book that I'm reading on this case. That author's coming on the program Monday. He's mentioned and then bam, walked right into That's what I mean about reading. The depth is there where you can really get a much better better context for what's happening like every, even the documentaries it's going to be so super and if you'll notice they generally go grab people who do write books come here and get in our documentary and we'll make you look really professional and expert for a few frames generally a white person and then have you do voiceover over some images or whatever it is and all that I mean that's generally what it is reading way trumps watching TV, even documentaries. Joseph Paul Franklin, so important. Did people know who that was? Joseph Paul Franklin. If you had said the name, just like Joseph G. Christopher, I would have failed. Now that's one, if I, if you had given me some hints like, ooh, might have assassinated or attempted assassinating Vernon Jordan. I'd have been, oh, oh, I think I know that. Like, okay, I still would have struggled with the name, but that case I was familiar with. I'd read about that before and seen that. I just didn't know all the extra details and all these. Uh, but let us because this is what I mean about black people. We are not informed at all. And these are I mean, there are hundreds of articles on Joseph G. Christopher. There's no reason even in an era with no Wi-Fi and all that. Like there is no reason for people not to be informed about this case even the especially mainstream media that's why I say this is not irresponsible journalism this is deliberate white supremacy racism Joey 22 22 caliber killer not being mentioned right now star 6-1 folks who dialed in with commentary to share let us know We'll uh, get your commentary and I'll make sure to read. Oh, and the email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Forgot untiljustice at gmail.com. We will nab your emails as well. Let us see. Uh, Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, I, I was only able to tune in probably in the last five minutes of the, of the reading, but, uh, I've had a uh, very educational week on the subject and subject matters involving uh, the book that we're reading. I still haven't met anybody yet that has even remotely heard of this incident that took place back in 1980. 
And let me let me ask you a question. You you said you got some additional information from uh, the 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 Buffalo newspaper. I got information what- from newspapers all over the world. Now, I can give you just off the top of my head a short list because I sat there for hours. This was in the New York Times. Okay, this okay. is in the Chicago okay. Tribune, L.A. Times, uh, China, South Evening. I mean, everybody. This was all over the world covered. Tony Brown, in fact, black publications, Jet, like any newspaper in the country covered this. And the Toronto Star newspapers outside the country covered this. Yeah, I, I, I have a follow-up question based on that because I, 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 I did hear that. And I, and, but were you able to talk directly to a person and ask them, well, why don't you folks have it in the paper today? Were you able to get, uh, get that across to anybody? That worked, I, you know, I spoke with it, the folks at the Buffalo Challenger, or it's now the Challenger Community News, and they said that they did not have the archival information, the things from the 1980s about this. They did not have that information available online, but they were working to get that information made available, and they just scanned copies and sent it to me. And now, I posted that as well, they have a new report today, uh, or this week, uh, that is linking these two incidents, Peyton Gendron and Christopher Joseph Christopher. So that's one. That's the only like current publication or someone who works there that I've been able to talk to directly to ask them why isn't this being uh, covered? I haven't talked to any white journalists about why this is not being discussed. Okay, because I'm I was I was about to say as dumb as the fire uh, the, the the retired firefighter is, uh, I. You know, once you know you mentioned about this particular incident, and we're and what we're reading, I just I just uh, went on Wikipedia, and boom, yeah, I mean, and Wikipedia, from my understanding, is not the best best known information device, you know, but uh, it's all kinds of stuff on on, the, on this guy, and. and to word for word on the the victims, uh, how old they were, uh, how did how did how did they get injured or killed, you know, by either either stabbed to death or shot, you know, everything that the the book is actually telling you, it's all in. I, I, like you said, it, it, it's it's a strong suspicion of of white people practicing racism for them not to connect these two things together. You know, and <laughs> I mean, 10 years from now, you, it, it'll probably come out that the uh, recent killer actually studied what what uh, the, the one in 1980 did, you know, as far and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I I I do not trust I do not trust uh trust that that uh uh idea in mind that them saying that they didn't know this was going on. You know, uh uh uh-uh, no. But uh those those are my, my thoughts. Because I like I said, I, I I basically didn't even get in time for the first reading except for 
you were talking about well the 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 person that was narrating was talking about uh some up some other cases that was taking place when I tuned in uh and i'll uh I'll rest from here thank you much obliged retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I absolutely, in my view, let me check, see our other folks as well. At least in my view, there is no logical re I'll share a few thoughts on victims in terms of the victims who were alive. And I'm not talking about people who were like, you know, six months old or anything like that at this time, not alive. Everybody in that group, you know, not even if you were like five or seven, you know, totally discounted. But if you were like 16, 17 years old, I will talk about those victims a little bit later. Anywho, uh, other folks who doubt, but the white dominated press. Oh yeah. That's not, like I said, that's not in my view, not irresponsible journalism. That's not laziness. That is flagrant white supremacy racism because they could just hit themselves. They love to do that. The New York times to link back to their archival uh, coverage because they got tons of it same thing certainly but they would have a link I've seen that when another incident and what have something happens in Colorado they would have a link to all of that they did that with the flood in New Orleans anytime they want to give you historical context so you can better understand why these things have happened and even the history of these events in this region that's exactly what they should be doing with this and Buffalo Evening News all of these folks that are still in business still operate Toronto Star they could be doing that they could just link to the they could do the exact thing that I did and they could do it even quicker because they have a whole staff and budget and all this stuff and boom 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 they can make it look pretty have a whole website for it and I, they don't want to do that they like to keep us confused and ignorant where exactly what you said it seems most victims don't even know about this despite the book that we're reading is five years old it's not hot off the presses dread 138 or oh, whatever other folks who dialed in as well i share let me even pause one more time before i tell you there is an i mean it's not even close it's not even close one i get two quick things in one we have been infantilized all of us gusty all of us part of that is we love to just sit in front of the television we talked about that in Shauna Swan where she said, man, it seems like there's research when you just sit down all day. People that sit down at an office, you know, that's not healthy and everything, but they don't get a lower sperm count for that. There's evidence just sitting in front of that television, lower sperm count like it is degenerative. You're not thinking, oh. you're not exercising your brain computer. Nothing is happening. Just sitting there and watching TV and <laughs> it's so funny. Empire and scandal and all the rest and the white supremacy programming and brain trashing that is happening just being a spe- what is this in the word guy greatest spectator Neely Fuller Jr. that's all that TV watching now the difference when you do I'm talking thank you when you do research reading I was sharing with Henry in Chicago I shared it with listeners because this happened repeatedly. I said it with the Atlanta child murders. I'm looking for Buffalo. I'm looking in the newspaper from 1980s. Buffalo slangs 
in the same paper on the same day Buffalo slings Atlanta child murder she had it in the book this week I said that was coming same time these events are happening how can you be confused about racism when this is in the newspaper every day black children are missing in Atlanta been missing at this point for a year for two years and then black people being killed in New York Buffalo oh my gosh four in a week in span three and 24 hours oh my gosh and massive confusion about racism but if you look in the paper you'll see this at the same time I'm looking this week to get all those articles so I'm looking for the Buffalo slangs just on one page page 26 they have an article on the Buffalo slangs that's at the very bottom bang that's what I needed but at the very top they got racial turmoil at school in Staten Island like what in the world so I get that one too I didn't come for that then right in the middle Love Canal government rebuke study and this is them saying that studies that have been published saying that Love Canal is toxic and poisoned that that is a bunch of foolishness and that hasn't been concerned, confirmed and these aren't even qualified scientific studies like really really all of this is on the same page same day same time that's a bonus that you get for reading that gent like I said context what was all happening at this time period wow fascinating reading is way more important than watching television it's not even close other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary proceed can I be hurt Henry in Chicago yes sir uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the calls and listeners. And thanks for those articles. I I, I was looking over them and uh, thought it was very interesting. Those, uh, especially the Love Canal article. So yeah, uh, it's interesting how they kind of dismiss those studies, <laughs> and then next thing you know, uh, uh, all kind of things were happening to the residents there. So um, yeah, I want to uh, you know read it a little bit more extensively. Uh, with, with that, so uh, thanks for the article. Great research. Um, in the in the reading, um, you know, it's interesting. I found that uh, Chief Donovan, um, and I'm assuming this is a white person who <clears throat> has sympathy for this this killer, because you know some of the quotes that he had is that psychopath who hates black people. Um, he said that he appealed for a calm and he made an appeal to the killer to contact him, promising that he would not be hurt and if he would receive psychiatric care. So <laughs> it's always, you know, a, a way out for racist killers to just call them psychopaths, um, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They're just crazy. Uh, but apparently he seems very calculated on what he's doing. And I mean, they also, he also talked about, and I don't know at the time that uh, it came out that he was targeting black men. You know, he said that he was targeting random people. And we all know that the, 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 the so far the killers who had killed all these black men, are not random because they were all connected. <clears throat> so uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, Joseph Paul Frank, 
I remember hearing that name, like you said, because of Vernon Jordan, but I didn't realize he was he was also responsible for other mass shootings and killings of, of black, you know, black males. He eventually got convicted uh, on, on the on the uh, on the Salt Lake murders because uh, apparently he got uh, executed. So, but uh, yeah, so I, I heard of his name, but I didn't know that he was involved in all of, all of the other stuff that the author had brought up. So I thought he was just you know, involved in the Vernon Jordan uh, case, but apparently he was doing some other crazy things. And and one last thing, you know, doing research, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. I'm going to email this to you guys. Um, as I was, you know, I was combing through, you know, uh, looking for stuff about, you know, white supremacy in New York or especially Western New York. I found this article, and it was written by a uh, written by a Genesee County uh, historian. Now, Genesee County is actually less than fifty miles from Buffalo, which is basically next door to Buffalo. And the article is about the Ku Klux Klan in Genesee County in the nineteen twenties. So he, he uh, this historian talked about the the, the Ku Klux Klan uh, in in Buffalo, well not Buffalo, but in that part of New York, and he talked about it in the sense that you know the Ku Klux Klan didn't have a lot of well during the twenties there wasn't a lot of black people, but they were you know uh, terrorizing you know uh, immigrants like Italians and Catholics and and all this other stuff. But what's interesting is at the end of this at the end of this. He says, um, there was a local expression of the national movement of the Klan in the 1920s. The Klan for a time in the 1920s held great emotional appeal. While the Klan today is certainly not what it was in the 1920s, one can only speculate about how much the sediments drawing from the county's residents to the Klan then are still apparent in the early 21st century. So I thought that was pretty interesting because in the reading, you hear about uh, you hear about the the, the white racist um, basically uh, harassing um, um, uh, black people, uh, harassing uh, 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 people at the at the Glenn Dunn funeral. So I was thinking like you know maybe remnants of the Klan from from next door. Uh, probably heard about this and probably planned it. You know, you know, they they think the clan might be dormant, but it might, you know, it probably still is active. So uh, I thought that was uh, interesting, but uh, that's all I have. I need my life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Before we get dread one thirty eight, I just want to say, reading is more important than watching television. It's so interesting that you said that. It's almost like foreshadowing. Now, Gus T, I am totally down. I love it when I do research and I get to jump ahead of an author. Like, I'm so on point with where this story should be going or either pointing out things that should be included that I'm a little bit ahead about the funeral. Mandatory. She did include it. She didn't say it last week, but she got it. And she got the quote about Emmanuel Thomas from his mom. I said it's in the newspaper. 
All the stuff is available. She included both of them right on in good standing. We, she did leave out the bullet holes at the funeral, but all of that said for foreshadowing and clan activity, cross burning. You want another one? We got to pay attention because if this goes chronologically, we're only at the end of September. So Martin Luther King holiday will be a while, right? Uh, Martin Luther King holiday in January of 1981. There is a planned white supremacist march for Dr. King's holiday in Buffalo. I think it was January 15, 1981 was Dr. King's holiday that day. But I mean, Klan act. In fact, I could even go to, we'll do that later. We'll do that. That's way down the line, but super foreshadowing Klan activity in this very story we're reading right now. Super for and Atlanta child murders. I mean, my goodness, clan activity. Oof. Dread one thirty eight. Yes, sir. Um, really, I just want to talk about the parallels. I guess, like you said, it's very prescient that the parallels between blended popular media. Where he talked about uh, when the author talked about um, Death Wish, and then how the narrative now is blaming social media rather than talk about the system of white supremacy, and then everybody's talked about Joseph Paul Franklin, which I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have an idea about, and then um, this unnamed liquor store owner, which is very fascinating, who apparently has claimed and owned his. Uh, Reputation as a killer was fascinating. Then I talked about, like, I think what I don't know if it's a concept, but the racist signaling where you talked about, you know, once the idea that it might have been a white man who killed, who was lying and killing these black men, and they go into um, young Mr. Dunn's funeral and um, terrorizing the family. Where they, they they sort of racist racist signaling incidents of terror will allow other race soldiers to take um, terrorist actions, and I'll be my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Dread One Three Eight Star Six One for other folks. If you have uh, commentary to share, uh, it's so interesting. I watched a little bit of Death Wish. The they just remade Death Wish with uh, Bruce Willis before all of his health issues or what have you. There was a big to-do about that. I think this may have been during the Trump presidency. I'm not sure, but it was recent. Within the last four years or so, they remade it. And it was uh, because when this film was released uh, in the mid-1970s, even though they said it was it was replayed, uh, it was kind of with a controversial and he says, is this racist? Like, there's a really graphic uh, rape scene where these two white women are beaten, one is killed, and the the daughter is raped in front of the mom. Now they say they are white. In fact, one of the rapists is uh, Jeff Goldblum. Remember him from uh, Independence Day? Will Smith. Har, 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 har. Anyway, but it is Jeff Goldblum. Um, but they say it's like, you know, they're Puerto Rican because they have all kinds of muggers and bandits. You know, some of them are black, some of them are white, and blah, 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 and all this. But I mean, it's a white man with a gun going out and you know, vigilantism, 
and yeah, right on. He's going and he's looking for the, that's what the movie, he's looking for the opposite, exactly what you heard in the book to kill someone. And they have articles in the paper where they're like, is this, this is not racist. I watched this movie where it was a black guy up front yelling like, yeah, right on. Kill that mother. Mm. Wellsing moment right there. Uh, but that's, they just remade it. I was going to say that's popular and they just remade it. Bruce Willis. And they made like a billion of them anyway. It's like Death Wish, you know, 26. And then they stop for a little while. And then President Trump comes back and they got to make some more. Like, anywho, uh, now try to imagine that film with Denzel Washington or Michael B. Jordan. OJ's. Anywho, let me get some of the uh, emails uh, that we got in and then I'll share some of my thoughts. Uh, Let's see. Uh, all righty uh, one of our investors wrote in greetings Gus I am still dismayed that this important history has been erased from my memory I asked my attempted spouse who was also an adult in New York City during this time period and she also has no recollection very common I guess it just serves as a reminder of the power of racist white supremacists to control the narrative I could talk about this for a whole book maybe I will one day I will just say that that is true them not mentioning it now not jogging your memory and blah 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 and all the rest all of that said I think too this was such a traumatic like period, like the Atlanta child murders was happening and that was widely talked about Muhammad Ali got involved and this was happening and Vernon Joy I mean it was lots and lots of things happening so I think this could have been a like collectively traumatizing period for a lot of black people because I see that with people who just with the Atlanta child murders where they just don't talk about it where they are aware that this happened and all that they live through it but they just don't talk about it I think that could be the case where this seeing this every I mean, just seeing what I know now, seeing this every day. Oh, they chopped the black guy's heart out. Oh, they're killing all these children in Atlanta. What's going to and this went on for years. I could easily see a lot of traumatized people where they have just deliberately not even, you know, it's just in their subconscious type of a thing. Why this needs to be remedied immediately. Chapter four. Serial murder in the city of good neighbors. Charleston, South Carolina is called the Holy City. These slogans are certainly not accurate when it comes to non-white victims and demonstrate how propaganda is used in the global system of racism, white supremacy. Number two, Harold Green's career as a rising engineer at Moog. Moog, M-O-O-G, Incorporated is a company founded by Bill Moog, which manufactures electrohydraulic systems in the aerospace and defense industries. The name Moog resonated with me because of the Moog synthesizer, an electronic musical instrument invented by Robert Moog, Bill's cousin. The instrument was modified and used extensively by Stevie Wonder during the 1970s and can be heard, for example, on the song Living for the City. How about that? Number three, Harold Green building stereo equipment Hmm, truly brilliant oh that's color monitors joseph mccoy helped care for his elderly father 
the details about these men remind me of the victims from the most recent massacre one of the most recent victims was an inventor oh that's right the uh mr salt or the police officer he's trying to make a water-powered car for several investigators uh, the movie Death Wish had been seen on TV. Charles Bronson inspired a psychotic killer. Vicious murder of his wife and rape of his daughter during a home invasion. There were six. I told you what I just say. See, there were six Death Wish films, five with Bronson and the last in 2018. I was right there starring Bruce Willis. The name Paul Kersey, who was the fictional protagonist vigilante in the films, was used as a pseudonym in the 2020 by white supremacist writer Michael Thompson when he wrote a series of anti-black articles now come on that's why I said like you, you can see even even the rape scene it's got all these white guys but I mean they're kind of dressed in black and they have like a, a black phallic symbol and I mean they're kind of niggerized not that you need to watch it what I said before uh, we didn't get we didn't even get that far I can stop I can stop right there uh, my notes and then we'll get to the second audio segment. Uh, let's see. Uh, I have to go back to the beginning of chapter four. Wow. I've taken so many notes. This is crazy. This is just like freaking. Uh, oh, we did get to chapter five. My bad. I thought we were still in chapter four. So we're in chapter five. Chapter five. Thank goodness. These chapters are getting a little chunky. So back to chapter four. Uh, so we're still Thursday, September 25th, 1980. Uh, let's see. Whew. Doesn't this remind you right now? Record year of crime in New York City and all these deaths. Uh, let's see. So we heard in Lucky Alice Siebold about her very pale complexion and we're in the same part of New York right Syracuse not that for she's in upstate this is more western New York but either way uh, and she talked about her super pale complexion repeatedly and then we have you the descriptions of the killer 165 pale pounds with a very pale complexion they skipped down the courier gave some background in each of the victims according to the article high school student Glenn Dunn uh, killed in a stolen car had been accused of sexually attacking a girl in August but no criminal charge had been filed at the insistence of the victim Now that's one where I kind of had the same thought that y'all did like wow victim of racism and even in death he is a black male rapist like wow <laughs> I mean and I mean she said this is in the paper which I'm sure it probably was uh, but just man the man not even in death what are we going to talk about we haven't caught your killer well he did try to rape that man Dylan Stormroof uh, let's see according to the Courier Express several investigators noted the movie Death Wish we already got that uh, let's see when they talked many folks said that they were not familiar with this case but they were familiar with the son of Sam now they've made movies and such about that so even Spike Lee made a movie about the son of Sam and all. I wonder if Spike Lee knows about Joseph G. Christopher hmm. uh, let's see we had a caller last week who talked about why didn't they have some sort of press conference around all of this to let people know uh, as Atlanta child murders had been going 
And it wasn't like this was hushed. This was in lots of newspapers. And I mean, live time. It wasn't like they were waiting till October. This was in many, 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 many newspapers all throughout September. Racial aspect of it, all the details. They reported about the funeral. All of that was in the newspaper. So all of this was being discussed. The police theory that this was some sort of racial attack. All of this was there. I guess now maybe they could have had something on television, but I mean, it was not like this was, you know, shh, don't talk about this type of a thing. I guess it could be should they have done more given what was happening you could have had a press conference like every day just like you could do that now Uh, let's see next Uh, uh. he's following the news and they take it because there are no shell casings when he kills Joseph McCoy fourth victim Niagara Falls and they say oh he had a bag over the gun he's reading the newspapers that's another one to kind of keep that in mind and that's even Welsing moment ejected the shells uh, penis gun is the great equalizer Welsing moment for sure I thought uh, let's see in the brazenness I just don't think if this had been a black person especially if they had been killing white people but anybody I don't think a black person could be out noon someone seems to have been killed injured whatever it is and you have white people witnesses who eh, whatever not really paying attention don't call the police that I just don't think this I think this person would have been caught way sooner Uh, I think only a white person could be that brazen knowing hey even other white people might be reluctant to turn me in maybe they just saw death wish too like you could take that either way death wish T.O.O or death wish one two let's see very pale comes up again uh punitiero says uh super pale you <laughs> white genetic annihilation is that what we're talking about patent gen- is that what we're talking about uh let's see and they said none of the witnesses to the mccoy shooting had gotten a look at the shooter's face, but it said the man was blonde, which seemed to sync with Pantanero's recollection of a pale complexion. Now, why would that be? Do we just automatically assume that pale, blonde, all that goes together? Genetic recessive, lack of melanin, all that goes together. That's what we're idolizing. Super pale, blonde, super pale, blonde. That's what we're seeing all the time. Hmm. Something to pause on. Let's see. They say so far, only witness they had was Kenny Paulson, who had seen the shooting, but still vacillated on whether the gunman was white or black. He's practicing white supremacy racism, period. And this probably happens a lot. Uh, Let's see. Chapter five. The weapon uh, in question uh, that we were searching for is a Strum, a 22 caliber Sturm, S-T-U-R-M, Sturm Ruger 10-22. That's the weapon that we're talking about. I'm certain that she'll get to that information later. Uh, chapter 5, uh, let's see. So they match the bullets. Uh, and again, this is all the information in the newspaper. As I said, the press included 
Chief Donovan's speculation that the suspect may be a psychopath who hates black people and a plea from Lieutenant John Zagarella of Niagara Falls. We're asking the general public to help us. Uh, if anyone sees this guy or anyone who looks like him, call the police immediately. The newspapers repeated the suspect description. In the case of the Buffalo Evening News, the reward being offered and the calls kept coming in. That's what I said, you know, reward, all that good stuff. Like, you know, uh, let's see. It was very well publicized. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. The Courier Express. I saw that survey, I believe. Uh, oh, man. When they spoke with the guy at the tavern, he said the shootings are an everyday thing with me. So I'm always overly cautious to avoid becoming a victim of some nut. The person doing the shooting is the type of animal I would like to run into. That's the, the whole theme of Death Wish, by the way type of person I would like to run into because he would learn he would be dealing with an animal himself I deal with psychos every day so one more nut will be nothing new to me and he works at the tavern come on (laughs) uh, the courier express reiterated that the victims were not linked in any way and that hate for blacks was a possible motive a hatred that permits him to kill indiscriminately the Buffalo Evening News quoted Chief Donovan the people he has killed I believe were killed at random whatever reason he chose for picking those people we have no idea now that right there at that point is ridiculous I think folks pointed that out like come on this is the same Chief Donovan who's like oh you know call us we won't hurt you that's you know uh, Peyton Gendron can be taken no harm down in Texas you saw what happened folks listening to this maybe 50 years from now they had that shooting down in Texas that gunman was not taken to Burger King I believe that gunman may have been classified as not white Uh, let's see and I mean just look at this every day east of the city police in Chitagua we don't think or it's possible it it could be related to racism we don't know then they get the phone call at the Burger King I'm going to kill another nigger. It's possible it could be racism. That same sort of attitude happens today. Uh, Joseph Paul Franklin, we already talked about him. They were correct uh, in terms of the killer being familiar with the area. And I even think it's, it is, I don't even know what to say. Joseph, I mean, yeah, Joseph G. Christopher, all the Josephs in this case. Joseph Christopher, Buffalo native. He's caught in Georgia. I said the Atlanta child murders are going up like just incredible. Uh, let's see. Oh, and she says, sadly, there seemed to be no shortage. All of this of, of what's happening in Atlanta. Uh, we talked about it. I also think that that's amazing. When the cows came back on the air, 2009, February 2009, very first program was Chet Detlinger's book, The List, which is hard to get. Uh, we talked to him he's deceased now that's how I know about this case he mentions it and that's why I said there is no one when you read most of or I think all of the films that I've seen on the Atlanta child murders they do not put this in context of what was happening in Buffalo and other events they will say you know racism and blah 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 but not oh my goodness context so important and I think that could be a total trauma of the era in terms of what was happening to black people and why some of us do not remember uh, let's see 
Henry Locke, you can go and get like all of the articles that are in the Courier Express from Henry Locke. I think this is a black male journalist of the time and the survey that they talked about in terms of different so-called civil rights leaders and how they think what the response should be. Uh, I downloaded that article today. You can check out and see what they had to say. Similar to what people would say now. Yeah, similar to what you would hear now. Uh, Let's see. Oh, they quote. This is what I mean. You could hear this now. They say uh, the sad thing about the question being raised said Donald R. Lee, a former president of the New York State Conference of the NAACP, is that the murderer's actions could possibly trigger some negative reactions between black and white citizens. When in reality, there's only some nut out there blowing people away. That word nut again, like, no, this is not a nut, (laughs) a white race soldier that's what we're dealing with and triggers we're in a system of white supremacy racism like it would be totally different if we were in a system of justice and this you know event this sort of situation could trigger some unnecessary conflict and paranoia right we're in a system of white supremacy racism what do you mean this could trigger what exactly that is not already happening violence come on Let's see this. So after that, that's why I said, so they, all this has been talked about. They're getting responses and interviews in the Courier Express and different newspapers. They talk to some of the black so-called leaders. If this man is not caught by Monday, Smith said black leaders will have to get together and move on this case. I don't even know what that means. All I can say is all of the leaders of black people, non-white people are white anybody classified designated as black I have no idea what they would do then or now Peyton Gendron what are the black leaders going to do even identify them first whoever you think they are now what are they going to do right let's see I heard all this before when they get to Daniel Acker black male victim of racism and he talked about he's so intelligent goes to school get educated all that and then he tries to get a job denied at the chemical plant like, oh man we just heard this in, in Dear Senator right S.A.B. Washington Williams same story same song uh, let's see black people taking this seriously and saying that they're going to be armed foreshadowing as well Oof, keep that in mind uh, let's see all this bragging yes yeah, so they they say hey this guy's suspicious go talk to him so they say detectives go talk to him he says oh I was gonna get them folks what happened to my wife he says what happened to your wife and he says he says that three black guys shot her in the stomach during a holdup now they've been prosecuted one of them is still in jail one of them is a juvenile now that's not hey justice wasn't served they got away with it they're in some villa in Mexico and Edward Snowden type of thing no they got convicted like what more do you want oh you wait like what what in the world who walks around bragging about this sort of thing and then he's not he could he says he told detectives he worked days as a physical education teacher at the Buffalo Public School it 
if you have offspring you need to have extraordinary comprehensive dialogue before you get in bed conceive a child way way before all that what's our child's academic program going to be this dude is sitting in class looking at every black male who's like 10 years and older are you that little rapist you're that little nigger rapist you look just like that little nigger like oh my (sighs) he bragged and I'm just taking it that's what she said he bragged about all this bragged about his education said he'd been telling people on the street that he was a suspect in the 22 caliber killings it gave him a feeling he didn't say privilege gave him a feeling of power adding that he wasn't afraid of any blacks coming after him he seems like he would not have said blacks he would have said negras wow now who even can say can you imagine a black person talking like that to police about why I'm gonna do this you wait till that white child and folks who did that get out of prison but you wait till that Peyton gender gets out of prison but buddy buddy his day is what what and I work at the school that's right tell them tell them that's exactly what I said spell my name out G U spell it for you imagine come on let's see oh they had witnesses to the Thomas shooting but they didn't have a phone it'd be no Wi-Fi now the black people victims of racism hopefully that wasn't a black leader who didn't have a phone Uh, let's see is that it that's it for chapter 5 Grant Uh, If you have additional thoughts or comments or what have you, just pause and we'll share. Uh, Context of white supremacy, Catherine Pellinero's uh, absolute madness. Context of white supremacy. This will be audio segment two. Uh, And again, if you have uh, comments, write them down. You can send an email as well until justice at gmail.com. We'll have ample time once this segment concludes. While more detectives meant that more leads could be pursued more quickly, and while each of the dozens of detectives was sharing information with the others, the sheer volume of information to be shared was staggering. Phone tips from citizens now numbered well into the hundreds and came from as far away as Rochester, 80 miles east of Buffalo. This was in addition to calls and leads from law enforcement in neighboring states. In the fall of 1980, Mobile phones, texts, and instant messaging were undreamed-of tools of a future generation. Communication meant landlines, message pads, the paper-and-pen kind, and typewriters. Sharing information took time, even with the most diligent of efforts. As the twenty-two caliber killer investigation entered its first full week, detectives who had not been present at the crime scenes on the nights or days of and had not participated in the initial questioning of witnesses, were following up in some instances without the benefit of knowing the full history firsthand, particularly feelings or instincts that aren't recorded on a witness statement. Thus it had been other detectives, not John Reagan or Mel Lobbett, who were assigned to follow up on the tip concerning statements allegedly made by Kenny Paulson's sister to a co-worker 
and yet two others who attempted another follow-up on Tuesday, September 30th, with Paulson's sister. It was some time before Detective Reagan even learned of this tip, as it was only one in an ever-growing pile, though the subsequent detectives were aware that Kenny Paulson had given a statement they were unaware of Reagan's instinctive feeling, shared by Lieutenant Bill Mistel, the first officer to question Paulson at the scene, that the kid had been less than candid. Later that week, Detective Al Williams was finally able to speak with Gloria Paulson. She said that the only thing her brother had told her was that the shooter had blonde hair. This was not the only instance of conflicting information in the investigation. A young male witness to the Emmanuel Thomas murder had told police that he and two friends, brothers who lived with their mother on Zenner Street, had been standing outside at the time and had witnessed both the shooting and the escape of the suspect in the blue car. He claimed that he and his friends had even attempted to chase the car down the street. When questioned, however, the two brothers insisted that they had been inside their home at the time and hadn't seen or done any such thing. Their mother backed them up. The other witness stuck to his story. He even gave a more detailed description of the car they had allegedly chased, although he altered his recollection of where the suspect's car had been parked. This was a common and twofold problem for police, witnesses who lied because they didn't want to get involved in a criminal investigation, and others who lied or exaggerated because they wanted to be part of things. This was particularly true of high-profile cases that garnered a lot of media attention, which the twenty-two caliber killings certainly had. Determining who was being truthful could sometimes be a gradual, painstaking process. Tuesday's re-canvas of Floss Avenue did turn up one good witness for the Dunn homicide. Barbara Wozniak had given detectives from the 16th Precinct her account of hearing four loud pops and seeing a hooded figure dart through the fence of the Topps parking lot. She now told it again to Detective Stanley Sussek and Officer Richard Robeson, who attempted to get as much detail as possible. Noting that Barbara's house faced the Topps parking lot and the opening in the fence through which the shooter had evidently fled, it appeared she did have an excellent sight line. On the night in question, Barbara had thought the person she saw running away was a kid who had set off some firecrackers. She had watched only long enough to see him running past five or six houses up the street from hers. In the minute or so she had stood outside and watched the person run, she hadn't seen anyone else either on the street or on porches. Barbara had not seen his face and could not say whether he had been white or black. For that matter, she couldn't definitely state whether the person was male or female, but judging by the build and the running speed, she thought male. She estimated his height at five feet nine and described his clothing as dark pants and a navy blue or black jacket with a hood. She saw him pull the hood down as if to keep his head covered. Barbara Wozniak was cooperative, credible. Her account was good. If only she had seen his face. The composite sketch circulating now seemed to be impeding rather than aiding the investigation. Uniforms patrolmen were devoting a substantial amount of time responding to sightings of the suspect. He was seen at bus stops, 
grocery stores, and gas stations. Officers would arrive and sometimes find a startled, average-looking white man in his thirties who would dutifully answer their questions. Other times they'd be told they had just missed the suspect or discovered that the call had been a hoax. More often, the calls came from panicky citizens who were genuinely afraid of Buffalo's son of Sam and were heeding the advice of law enforcement to contact police if they saw anyone who resembled the description of the suspect, which was quite a lot of people. The fear and anxiety was by no means limited to the black community. Many whites were almost equally leery of the phantom gunman and his disturbed esoteric agenda. Anyone who would prowl the streets randomly blasting strangers must have a screw loose. So few people felt absolute confidence in the idea of their own invulnerability. Who knows when a madman might decide to switch targets? After all, David Berkowitz, the real son of Sam, had at first reportedly attacked only young women with long dark hair before expanding the scope of his victims. Undoubtedly, the fear was far more intense within the black community, given the profiles of the victims and the long, notorious national history of racial animosity and violence, of which Buffalo, like so many other American cities, had seen its share. Tuesday's reportage of the crime spree included a prominent article that quoted an unnamed but well-known forensic psychiatrist who gave a profile of the killer and a dire prediction in a bold headline, Loner, filled with hatred, will strike again. The psychiatrist theorized that the killings were the result of the man's prodigious anger and hatred toward blacks, that he would likely strike again because the pathology lies in him and that the murderer did not experience any guilt or remorse. Alongside the composite sketch was the doctor's analysis that the suspect was sick, but may well be mentally competent to stand trial, if the legal system ever catches up with him. The article stated that it would be difficult to catch the murderer, who might appear passive to friends and co-workers. According to the psychiatrist, it's going to take a great deal of sleuthing. Already there was talk of citizens banding together to help capture the killer. A group of about 30 black residents had formed under the leadership of Grady Davis, chairman of the Buffalo Soldiers Democratic Club, with the intention of acting as a support network that would operate in conjunction with the police. Davis and members of the group had paid a visit to Commissioner Cunningham and Sheriff Kenneth Braun on Monday. The purpose of the support network, Davis explained, was as much to divert fear and hostility in the black community as it was to aid in capturing the murderer. Following the harassment at Glenn Dunn's funeral, Davis had received many calls from terrified residents who were convinced that the murders and the funeral desecration were the work of a splinter organization of the Ku Klux Klan. Several black residents had told Grady Davis of seeing suspicious whites in their community, which, given the climate, could have meant any white person they hadn't seen before. Some said they planned to buy firearms to protect themselves. Fearing that the situation could spiral out of control, Davis had formed the support network as a means of channeling the agitation toward a positive goal and allowing the community to take an active role alongside law enforcement. What he wanted to avoid, he said, was the possibility of citizens going off on their own 
and breaking the law out of fear. Reverend Bennett Smith and Daniel Acker had meanwhile met with Fletcher Graves of the United States Justice Department on Monday night and pressed their case for bringing in the FBI. On Tuesday afternoon, Chief Leo Donovan attended a meeting in Police Commissioner James Cunningham's office with Smith, Acker, and Graves, along with a few other black civil rights and religious leaders, an assistant district attorney, and U.S. Attorney Richard Arcara. Donovan explained the scope of the investigation and the commitment of the police to solving the case. All vacations and personal leaves in the Homicide Bureau had been suspended until the killer was apprehended. Commissioner Cunningham stated that he would welcome the assistance of the FBI, but that call rested with Richard Arcara, who said he would withhold his decision on formally requesting the aid of the Bureau until the following day, when he would meet privately with Fletcher Graves. Arcara had already briefed the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department in Washington on the series of events. The FBI offered the use of its facilities, including its laboratories in Washington, D.C. As far as entering the case in an investigative capacity, however, the FBI had no jurisdiction unless a federal violation had been involved. Covering the meeting in the next day's newspaper, the Courier Express quoted Fletcher Graves's contention that the murders may have been part of a conspiracy, even a national conspiracy, to kill black leaders. He did not explain how the four twenty-two caliber victims could constitute black leaders. Nevertheless, he had secured a promise from Commissioner Cunningham that the police department would provide round-the-clock protection for local black civil rights and religious figures if needed. On the same day, October 1st, the Courier ran an editorial welcoming the participation of the United States Justice Department and Fletcher Graves and praising the New York State Police for taking a larger role in the investigation, which so far amounted to checking on tips from rural areas and offering the hypnosis services of a state trooper who happened to be a hypnotist. The piece criticized the three local police departments, Buffalo, Cheektowaga, and Niagara Falls, for a fragmented approach to the shootings and the seeming sluggishness in the early stages of the investigation. It ended with the call for all law enforcement agencies to redouble their efforts to solve these horrible crimes. Immediately following his Wednesday morning meeting with Fletcher Graves, U.S. Attorney Richard Arcara directed the FBI to enter the twenty-two caliber killer investigation. Arcara and Graves had pinpointed a section of federal law that would permit FBI entry. Civil rights legislation enacted twelve years before made it a federal crime, with a possible sentence of life imprisonment, for any person to interfere with the federally protected rights of other citizens on the basis of race. Per Section 245 of Title 18, these rights included enjoyment of the services and facilities of any lunch counter, soda fountain, or other facility which serves the public and is principally engaged in selling food or beverages. Since two of the victims had been murdered in places that might be construed to fit this definition, Glenn Dunn in a grocery store parking lot and Harold Green at a Burger King, the killer had interfered with their right to public accommodations and had therefore violated their civil rights. 
Federal investigators would now be working on the case with the state police, the three municipal police departments, and the district attorneys of Erie and Niagara counties. Arcara stated that no one individual or agency would be in charge of the investigation. They would all collaborate, as they had in the past on stings and bank robberies. The law enforcement agencies around here have worked together long enough over the years, so we don't have that kind of a problem, Arcara said. The problem of who is the leader. On the heels of this announcement, Erie County District Attorney Edward Cosgrove called for a meeting in his office the next day, where all the various agencies involved would discuss the investigation. While officials planned meetings and pondered conspiracy theories, Leo Donovan kept his focus on the nuts and bolts police work. He remained convinced, based on his experience and the evidence, that the twenty-two caliber killer was one man. He called for a small, unpublicized meeting of his own, one that he hoped might produce results. They needed a better composite of the suspect. Frenchy Cook had been with Emmanuel Thomas the night he was shot and had gotten a close-up, full-face view of the killer. He was the only living person they knew for certain who had. Donovan had Cook brought to headquarters on Wednesday night. Detective Paul Delano had Frenchy go over his account of what happened again, which was identical to the statement he had already given. They showed him a photograph of a suspect, the man with some personal problems and criminal history who had been brought to the attention of police by one of his former co-workers because of his resemblance to the Chictawaga composite. Frenchy thought the suspect maybe, possibly, looked somewhat like the man who killed Emmanuel, but he just wasn't sure. They questioned Frenchy about what the shooter looked like, encouraging him to recall specific details of the man's facial features, using individual parts to build a portrait, images of different size and type noses, eyes, brows, and chins. They worked on constructing a likeness of the shooter, until finally they came up with a second composite. It looked very much like the first one. The key difference was that the suspect looked much younger. The composite was sent to cartography, where a photograph could be made showing the suspect in a fishing hat, a crushed blue cap, and a watch cap. Frenchy Cook was experiencing a great deal of distress and anxiety over the shooting. After completing the composite, he told officers that he was thinking of going to California out of fear for his own safety. Officers tried to reassure him and hoped that he would stay. His identification could be important if a suspect was arrested. Leo Donovan was dismayed at the new composite, with its essential lack of difference and distinction from the first. Still, it was a starting point. What he wanted to do was have it shown to other witnesses as soon as possible, to see if it jogged memories and, ideally, if any features could be added. One thing of which Donovan was now relatively certain was that the suspect was a younger man. If they could refine the composite with the recollections of other witnesses, it could be a key to identifying the killer, who, Donovan was convinced, was out there in the community somewhere. Despite all the floating theories about multiple gunmen and national conspiracies, Leo Donovan felt the truth lay much closer to home, in the guise of a single troubled white male, 
who was able to effortlessly blend into the community without drawing attention to himself, because he had done so all his life. The killings had started in Buffalo, and the solution would be found here as well. For the second time in a week, Madonna Gorney wanted to call the police. She had been following the case from the beginning, from the rainy Monday night the previous week when she had returned home from the Topps Market and saw the news on TV about the shooting of Glenn Dunn, which she had missed by only minutes. She had, of course, contacted the police the following morning and spoken with officers that day. But now, after seeing the composite sketch in the newspaper and reading all the articles about the shooter possibly being a white man, she felt she should speak to them again. She kept thinking of that lone white man she had seen outside of Tops that night, sitting on the railroad ties by the store entrance with the brown paper shopping bag at his feet. Of course, he didn't look anything like the composite. The man she saw had been far younger, and he wore glasses. Moreover, she hadn't sensed any malevolence about him. On the contrary, Madonna thought he might be slow, judging by the dull, blank look on his face. Madonna didn't have to call the police again. John Reagan came to her home that Thursday, October 2nd. She told him about the young white male. He was twenty to twenty-two years of age. He had dirty blonde hair, parted on the left side. She described his eyeglasses, light metal frames, and his clothing. A blue nylon jacket, light-color shirt, khaki pants, and light-colored sneakers— his face was fuller than the composite sketch in the newspaper. She mentioned his vacant look, the brown paper shopping bag. When Madonna had passed him on her way into the store, he had just been sitting there alone, as though he was waiting for someone. When she came out of the store, he was gone. Detectives Al Williams and Frank DeBell went to Niagara Falls to have the witness in the Joseph McCoy shooting view the new composite. This witness said the suspect's jaw was not long or angular, as depicted in this new version. She said he was not wearing a hat when she saw him, and that his hair was brownish-blonde, and was between his ears and shoulders in length. His nose was not large, but slender. She couldn't give any more specific facial details, since she had only seen his face in profile. He was twenty-three to twenty-five years old, about five feet six or five feet seven, with a slender build. He wore dark pants, a blue or black checkered shirt, and some sort of canvas-type shoes. We are beginning to realize what we are looking for, announced Lieutenant Frederick Netzel to the media. We slowly are trickling into one description, a younger guy with blonde hair context of white supremacy i thought that was great to end right there you frequent or infrequent i think where it's a young white blonde is the sinister evildoer like that is generally not the case uh, the number to dial if you have commentary to share, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. 
We're still in Chapter 5. That's what we'll pick up at next Thursday. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Untiljustice at gmail.com is the email. Uh, folks who dialed in, if we missed you totally, you should definitely get a hand up immediately. Uh, that way we will not miss you. Uh, but if you have a hand up, you should be with us. So that's Dread 138, uh, our retired firefighter in Florida, Henry in Chicago, all with us. If I see other folks, I will nab them as well. Uh, if you all have thoughts to share, proceed. Can I be hurt? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if you talked about this, Gus. Uh, I remember a while ago you were talking about the media's portrayal of, uh, you know, uh, these racist, uh, you know, women and men who were calling the police on, on black folks. And they were giving them nicknames like, you know, Barbecue Becky or something like that and calling them Karens. And, and I remember you were talking about how that minimized uh, the, the the seriousness of it. And I feel like, you know, given this killer, the 22 caliber killer is kind of like, you know, in the same respect, he's a terrorist, a white terrorist at that. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel that's almost the same thing, but I might be wrong. But uh, that's all I have right now in my life. 22 caliber terrorist would that be you think that would be a little more accurate that would be better improvement uh 22 caliber white terrorist, white terrorist. Would probably be more accurate <laughs> 22 caliber white terrorist there we go 22 caliber white terrorist uh much of black accuracy is important and they said there are so many articles from that time period terror blacks in terror blacks in fear same thing they got right now uh retired firefighter in florida uh dread 138 yes uh i did 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 i hear someone mention about that there was a um another uh uh popular killing that uh was taking place at the same in and around the same time as this case atlanta child murders atlanta oh. child murders what what about that one that was in new york with the white male new york city i'm talking about give us some more details and and when uh i'm i'm, I'm thinking it was in and around that time uh the white male who uh uh uh, that was uh, he was by himself. Uh, I forgot. I forgot the 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 quote unquote nickname that was tagged with Sam. him. I think what you said. Oh, son of Sam. That's what you're talking about. Son of son of Sam. Yeah, yeah, son of Sam. Oh, was thanks, that in around the same time too? Well, that was a few years before. That's what they were talking about. That people were oh, still remembering. Oh, okay, okay, for a few years before. Okay, I, I, I was just thinking uh, that that on whether night was a rival. Uh, type of killing that was going on because certainly uh, something like that I think is happening now 
uh, with this situation that took place uh, a couple of days ago in uh, Texas. Uh, in uh, minimal tangents, please. Uh, I, I don't understand. Uh, minimal tangents, meaning we're not really talking about Texas. We're talking about the book specifically. That's not, you know. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to say anything in specific. I'm. I'm just stating from the standpoint of uh, with the uh, the present Buffalo situation and uh, the the Texas situation is kind of like taking some of the attention off of it. Uh, based on. I didn't hear anything about it today, the uh, day or yesterday on the on the the uh, more popular news that comes on television, that sort of thing. Um, and I was just wondering, was the same thing? Did the same thing take place back in 1980? Did it? Did uh, other than the Atlanta child murders? I was thinking about the the last thing somebody mentioned that that it might have been the same, but it wasn't. Uh, okay. Just wondering. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, you, your report that you made on about, uh, books as opposed to, uh, television, uh, or movies, it, anything that's filmed, it, it, it's a time frame. It's a very restricted time frame. Uh, you know, two hours or so, something like that. And with a book, you know, a, a book is a lot more information that's available to you. Uh, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, a lot more accurate information <laughs> as opposed to what you see on television or in the movies. Uh, for some reason, uh, I guess from the standpoint of what they call entertainment, they figure that people need that uh to add into something, even if it's based on a true, a quote unquote true story, they still have some, some things in that particular movie or, or a television program that actually did not happen. Uh, and books are much more reliable, uh, more honest, uh, in his, uh, in his understanding and studies. And, uh, and that's what one thing uh, victims of racist white supremacy need to uh, hold paramount is uh, to be as concise as possible. Books over television and movies. That's it. Much obliged. Uh, Dread138, did you have commentary, sir? Just listening, or did you have commentary? Might be muted. Might just be muted, or maybe didn't have commentary on the. Just, just listening. Oh, okay, right on. Much obliged, sir. Uh, let me make sure I get in uh, our caller, or excuse me, I, one of our investors. He wrote in. Uh, he did get to chapter five, so I can make sure I get that in now. Uh, let's see. He wrote in for chapter five. 
Cat had missing hands either. He wrote in for chapter five. Let's see. Oh, knocked off the page. There we go. Uh, all right. For chapter five, number one. Lacking the real name of the gunman, media give him the twenty-two caliber killer, Gary James Lewingdom and Thaddeus Charles Lewingdom, suspected racist, were also named the twenty-two caliber killers. They murdered ten people in Ohio from 1977 to 78. The motive was reported to be robbery. Hmm. And it's cliche. I mean, that's another reason. Let's you know, we already got that. Let's pick something else. Number two, during the graveside service, two vehicles, two white males were seated in the front, mannequin head stained with what looked like blood, man on the hood. Shadow racial taunts. Uh, two or more white males. Da, da, da. An example of the dedication of racist white supremacists putting a bloody mannequin on the hood of a car. OMG, for real. Number three, several black men and boys had been wounded or killed by ambush attacks from a sniper. Vernon Jordan had been shot and seriously wounded in Indiana. Two black teenage boys had been killed in Cincinnati. Two black men had been murdered in a park in Salt Lake City. Joseph Paul Franklin had been a virulent racist and consummate criminal. Are all these murders, including the so-called Atlanta child murders, connected in some way in addition to just being the work of so-called racist white supremacists? Dun dun dun! There are like more newspaper articles and videos and magazines saying exactly I mean bold-faced letters. Tony Brown, black journals that's why i said like you can't really tell any of these stories accurately because it was like oh this was every day i said like just going and looking at the newspaper i was seeing like wow that is crazy like bottom page six slave in buffalo hearts cut out of chest what's going to be done clan marching cross burning and then the same paper the same day and it's been for years Black children murdered, missing in Atlanta. What's to be done? Yes, all of this is happening at the same time. And people are at like, dang. And they're saying, is there a national conspiracy against black people? Like that'll be the whole title. It'll be linking all these together. I don't know how all of that could be forgotten in some memory of the Atlanta child murders and then all the connection of it gone. He continues, uh, Jordan was in the company of a blonde white woman cowbell who worked for the local Urban League after giving a speech in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1980. Black people in the area reported to me many years later that local Urban League members went and got Jeff Towns, the only black surgeon in the area, after Jordan was taken to the hospital because of fears that Jordan would not receive adequate care. Medical apartheid. Towns was credited with saving Jordan's life. Talk about it. Black doctors. Joseph Paul Franklin was initially acquitted of the assassination attempt, but later confessed. Yeah, that's right. He did get the death penalty, but not for this case. He was acquitted in that case. Like, black male privilege? Number four. Daniel Acker, president, local NAACP, concerns police slowdown. County DA Edward Cosgrove took exception to the FBI expressed confidence in the investigation. Race soldiers have been accused of similar slowdown behavior 
as a reaction to the George Floyd protests and defund the police campaigns. True. Number five, Fletcher Graves, U.S. Department of Justice, had inquired about the killings and asked if he thought it would be necessary to bring the FBI in on the case. I wonder how much public how, how much was publicly known at the time about COINTELPRO and the other atrocities committed by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. I think it was known to some degree. Pause. It was certainly not known to the degree that it is now. And I would even say now, I don't think it's well known. But at this time, you had no like Internet and that same thing. They were saying no text messages. So I don't think it was well known at that time. However... And it's so ironic, like I'm reading is more important than watching television. Another way you get context is you read because then you get to see what were people talking about at this time period. I was just saying I'm not really a fan of James Baldwin, but that's a whole nother tangent. However, he did write about the Atlanta child murders. I don't think he mentioned Buffalo, so shame on him. But he said I have, maybe I have to go back and check to make sure. But I don't think he did. I think I would remember that. But he talks about how they were bringing the FBI in on the Atlanta child murders case as well. And he said, yee, I don't know if we want them. I mean, have they been friends to black people? Like, geez, I remember all of, you know, so I mean, Hey, some people did have a knowledge about their conduct and racism, white supremacy, but it was not widespread at this time at all. Like, I think it had only been like less than a decade that the Cointel profiles had even been released publicly. So it was not like, major widespread and no internet too uh let's see my oh did i get everything let's see detective paul delano and frenchie go over his account of what happened again which was identical to the statement he had already given using individual parts to build a portrait images of different size and type noses eyes browns brows and chins they worked on constructing a likeness of the shooter until finally they came up with a second composite we learned about the use of these composites from the book club selection lucky mentioned twice today sounds like Frenchie was more reliable than Siebel that man a squirrel is more reliable than her uh, number seven the news director of TV station WB oh 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 uh, yeah we stopped we didn't get that far stop right there Anywho, my notes uh, for the section and then see if we can end on time. How about that? Uh, let's see. Taking so many notes uh, for chapter five. Mm, let's see. Oh, didn't even get the man. So many notes. My goodness. Again, if you're interested in any of the articles that are mentioned, I guarantee it pretty much that they are available. Like it's that prolific. Uh, got that far. Okay. Chemical got that far. Daniel Acker got that. Okay. Um, bragged about it. Boom, boom. Okay. Didn't have a phone. Got that too. Uh, Paulson, here we go. Kevin Paul, this is the white guy who they said was lying. The police said he was lying and deliberately not giving them accurate information. Uh, he says Paulson gave a statement. They were unaware of Reagan's instinctive feelings shared by Lieutenant Bill Misdall, the first officer to question Paul at the scene. They had the kid had been less than candid. And this is one because they didn't write that down. That's why the importance of reading and writing, because hey, how would they know they didn't include like, hey, we think this kid is lying. And that might be racism too. to just put that down. Like, hey, we think that this kid is lying. 
he doesn't want to identify that the suspect is white put that down you who, who knows you could be moved to another case and this is all we're left with uh let's see uh so it's up the fear and anyway, this is what i mean about things aligning with what is true hearing black people say that they are afraid of white people in my life is very rare very rare I generally hear the exact I'm not afraid of no cracker or no black person either and I wish somebody would tell me that's general we've had that in the archives of the cows literally let's see the citizens banding together Grady Davis I love the black self-respect but that had absolutely no impact that happened in Atlanta during this time period they called them uh, bat patrols and it had zero impact at all and I mean zero in fact the bat patrols and armed black people went out I think literally the day after they did this a child was murdered and killed and the body was dumped like the very street that they marched on like to brag about how ineffective they were so and just you can keep that in mind because that's going to happen here too uh, let's see the the black people buying firearms you'll just lots more on that to come black people buying firearms just keep that in mind when they say covering the meeting the courier express quoted Fletcher Graves contention that murders may have been a part of a conspiracy even a national conspiracy to kill black leaders he did not explain how the 422 caliber victims could constitute black leaders amen the leaders are black and I mean you've got children Glenn Dunn is 14 years old he's not a leader uh, a black leader so called uh, let's see the composites I think that's so important as well because oh they say a troubled white male what does that even mean this is the same detective Donovan like what does that mean did they do this when they talk about black people like oh he's a troubled negro they said Zachariah Walker was a worthless negro from Virginia after he had been lynched and mutilated they didn't say oh he was poor this guy's going around killing people and worse and he's always trouble poor fella we won't hurt you just turn we'll take you to Burger King you like Burger King we know you like Burger King come on uh, but I do think that's great detective because they say oh no this guy knows this place he's so brazen he's not a stranger he knows this area absolutely uh, da, 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 da. oh and then the, the witnesses taunted they say man this guy we think this is somebody here might even be connected to the, the people that came and terrorized the funeral that was widespread a thought as well because uh, people there were even black people this is in some of the newspaper reports from the time there are black people who said hey the car that or one of the vehicles that came blood mannequin all that the blue vehicle I believe they said seemed similar to one of the vehicles that a witness saw at the scene of one of these shootings could this be a connection and then we got this vehicle the the witness for one of the later shootings I believe that was the Thomas shooting saying that walking out and oh my gosh kill all the niggers and all of this like what and they've already said like hey it seems like this killer might be watching the news maybe they're keeping up with all of this maybe they even have help with all of this certainly at least if not direct assistance they got a lot of indirect white assistance with white people don't want to identify this as a white person or just forget now they did say uh, the white woman uh, Madonna 
uh, make sure I get her name correctly, that she does eventually talk to the police and identify Gornay. That's it, Madonna Gornay. Gorney. Gorney. She does identify. Like, oh man, I'm following the case and they got this white composite now. I forgot to tell them, like, okay, but I mean, hey, lives is so many examples of that throughout this case. When Harold Green, we talked about that Burger King, Dylan Roof for real. When we talked about that at Burger King, he gets killed and you have all these witnesses outside. I don't know. I don't want to get involved. But they said smoke is coming from his head slumped over all unnatural and doesn't move you honk the let's get out of here all of this oh it was a strange white fellow there but even Gorney Gorney that's it she says he didn't look malevolent she'd been following the case but now she wants to tell him he didn't seem you know in fact he looked slow whatever that means and had this kind of dull look on his face. Now, I don't know what a white person has to do to look malevolent. Remember, Dr. Wellesley even talked about that study. I think they had on one of the major news outlets. They showed children a picture of, uh, I think it was Timothy McVeigh. And they said, oh, he looks angelic and nice and sweet and smart. And they showed him a picture of Dr. King. They were like, oh, my God. Rapist, worthless Negro from Georgia. <laughs> I remember that. Or maybe you didn't see that, but they got that online. Dr. Welsing talked about that. What do you mean he didn't look malevolent? <laughs> I mean, I guess if you think he looks slow, whatever that means. But <sighs> it's just been my experience. Like, even what they've got news reports of white people who literally are bloody and they are allowed to cross the border into the country does Michael Myers look malevolent not to encourage television watching but I mean all of that to say this white killer gets a lot of help direct or indirect in being that's why he could be so brazen and come out and do this in broad daylight publicly randomly whatever and just so quickly I can go out and kill two three four people all in 24 hour period what's the big deal I'm a white man so much more to oh my god there's so much information like literally you can sit around and just research and research and research oh and research is until your heart is content uh, on this case uh, there's so much detail uh, if you want to do more research let's see did I miss anybody anybody uh, that had commentary or questions that we missed totally soon we got everybody again enormous gratitude to the folks at community challenger news uh they huge assistance in the program that we did for this week and making it constructive hopefully uh let's see let's say uh we will be here tomorrow Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Neutralizing workplace racism. Heard some of that today. Mr. Acker not getting promoted, even though he is super qualified. Uh, We will, the Texas shooting, Buffalo shooting, see if any of that is coming up in the workplace and give out some other suggestions. We'll also be here for the compensatory call-in Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on updates from Buffalo and other news. And I've been mentioning the other book, Joey 22, Matt Greida, white man who wrote about this as well. His book came out in 2014, and uh, he is a journalist uh, in the Buffalo area. He lives in western New York. He covered these events 
live time when everything was unfolding. So he'll be here Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I think that is so-called Memorial Day. So you can cook out, barbecue, all that stuff, and then maybe share, dial in with a question, learn more about the case. His book is, uh, I was going to say it's different, but, I mean, they cover most of the main points are in line. That's Monday. Anywho, reading, more important than watching television. Sobriety would be best. Peyton Gendron, Joseph G. Christopher, Joseph Paul Franklin, lots of reasons to be alert. We will need really high-functioning brain computers. Uh, if you're out and about, you see somebody being hostile, it could be Joseph G. Franklin. Excuse me, Joseph G. Christopher, all those Josephs. Looking for conflict with a black person. Exit, if you did not prepare to die right now, kill right now, let me get out of here. Dangerous times on the plantation if you're in a vehicle, sober, buckled, not on your cell phone, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers and doing as much as we can to be alert of our surroundings. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah!